Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats or over on Facebook as well. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, usually. NationalReview.com as well. Click there and you'll find all the fine NR podcasts, including ours. Listen, enjoy, share, and please leave reviews. Also, we invite you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. You can help the show stay ad-free and support our efforts there. Entry level for support and voting on some questions. Mid-level for early access to new shows with higher audio quality. And the upper-level bestest friends with exclusive content once a month. Remastered episodes, with song clips, and Spotify playlists, and a whole bunch of stuff. Find out more information at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I am just back from getting my teeth drilled, uh, which, you know, normally doesn't put a man in the best kind of mood. But I'll tell you right now, I am I'm ready. I'm raring to go. I've got my boxing gloves on. I've got my sneakers. I'm ready for this long sprint to the end. Come on, Scott and Damon. Let's dance. At Esoteric CD on Twitter. And as Jeff alluded to, our fine guest returns for part number three of our David Bowie episode, where we head from Last Dance all the way to the end. Damon Linker is back, senior correspondent at The Week, where he writes three columns each week about politics and culture. He's on Twitter, at Damon Linker. Damon, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me back. This has been quite an experience. It's been fabulous so far, and I have a feeling we're gonna we're gonna do these final I don't know two or three decades of David Bowie's life proud tonight. <laughs> well, at least most of it. Most. Of yes, it. most of it. <laughs> uh, we left off last time at part two with scary monsters, and continued that all the way in through uh, his uh, David Bowie's work with Queen under pressure. And that takes us up to uh, what would be a commercial, commercial renaissance for David Bowie in 1983. And I know that there, there's some, some, I think there's some things in here with managers and record labels and stuff, which is why there's this little hiatus between 80 and 83. Jeff, you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. It's it's uh, actually not that complex a story. So D David Bowie had, had been signed to a pretty crappy record deal with RCA, and he'd really fallen out with their label at the time. Of course, he'd finally extricated himself from the clutches of his original manager, Tony DeFries, several years before, who held rights to a lot of this music as well. Uh, now he'd finally played out the final strand of his record contracting and he signed a new one with EMI. The funny thing you have to know about Bowie is that yes, he had that one big hit single <clears throat> and I think those two years of commercial success in the United States with young Americans and station to station fame goes to number one station to station does really well on the charts too. But then after that, of course he just, you know, plotted his own course and went, went deeply into the weird, the experimental, the Berlin era, and then scary monsters for that matter, which was a very big success in great Britain but it didn't really actually have a huge commercial impact in the United States. So now David Bowie is free. The money he's going to make from now on is his money and his alone. And uh, one of the interesting side stories about his career after this point is that he's going to become incredibly intelligent 
you know, fearless and you know, completely bloodless about monetizing himself. This is a man who would actually release Bowie bonds later on in uh, <laughs> the early nineties where you could just buy stock in his songwriting catalog. And it was a good investment actually because the catalog kept growing and the back catalog was just amazing as it was. But right now he actually does quite intentionally make a commercial decision to just, I'm going to go big. And, you know, what's the reason for that? Well, one of the things is, is that after Scary Monsters came out and then John Lennon got assassinated, he he scotched the idea of a tour. And mm -hmm. instead what he did is he played actually on Broadway. We always keep returning to the idea of Bowie the actor, and we'll be coming back to that, I guess, at least once during this time. Um, he was a great actor, stage and in movies, and he played the Elephant Man which would, of course, later be made into the famous David Lynch film. And, of course, Bowie would himself then guest in a David Lynch film, Twin Peaks, uh, you know, much later down the line and uh, contribute to the Lost Highway soundtrack, among other things. Uh, and this is what he did instead of touring Scary Monsters. But after that turn, he decided, all right, now it's time to make some big bucks. So what does he do? He, he, he goes and gets the guy from Chic, uh, Niall Rogers. Chic was one of these great late 70s disco bands. Uh, and uh, I'm uh, one of the, there are a lot of people out there who, even to this day, like to, like, you know, down on disco. You know, and we, there was obviously a big cultural backlash to it in the day. I've had never had any problem with it. Not all of it is to my tastes, but I, I like a great groove as much as the next man. And I don't really have any problem with poppy sounding music. My only problems are with music that doesn't, doesn't seem to really hold together and is otherwise flimsy. There are a lot of really great, well written, and well produced and well performed disco songs. And Chic made a bunch of them. Um, so Niall Rogers was a very canny choice. And uh, before he did that, though, he – and I do want to mention this first up. Before David Bowie went to Niall Rogers to do his first album of this era, he went to another disco great. Probably maybe the singular most well-known disco giant of them all. It was a man named Giorgio Moroder. And this project was for, like, one of the most terrible horror films of all time. I don't know if either of you have seen Cat, Cat People by yeah. uh, Paul Schrader. No. This is just the, the, original, no. the original film, you know, the Val Luton film from the 50s, is a classic of horror, psychological horror. Uh, but the one in 1982 is just comically stupid. It's so literal. I mean, it's just like... like people erupting out of their skins and turning into, into panthers and there's lots of nudity and you know, I guess nobody's going to complain about a, a young Natasha, Nastasha Kinski nude but it's a terrible <laughs> film it has one thing going for it and that is David Bowie's title track that he co-wrote with Giorgio Moroder and had him produce called Cat People putting out fire so a song that was so good that he would actually use it and remake it again for his next album but this is the definitive cut. Just so much about this is, is just completely bracing the, 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 the opening section where it builds up slowly. And then, you know, David starts singing in that great operatic voice about he's been putting out fire with gasoline. And I've been putting out fire with gasoline.
because obviously you're not putting out fire at all. And then there's an incredible guitar solo at the end of it, which is one of the finest guitar moments of his entire career. Uh, this is one of those songs that will fall between the cracks because the way most people know it, if they know it at all, is from the album. Uh, and there's a lot. And I know Damon is going to be very eager in particular to discuss a lot of these non-album soundtrack numbers that Bowie does during the 80s. And in a very strange way, they all seem to be better than most of his actual album works from the era. And I wonder if that's a telling thing where he felt free to do a one-off and just try to do something strange as opposed to putting out like a really big commercial proposition. Um, that said, he succeeded immensely with his next album. And of course, we all know what this album is. This is the most famous David Bowie album of all time. I think it's certainly the most the best selling maybe in retrospect people know Ziggy Stardust more or they know heroes more but everybody back in the day 1983 1984 everybody and their mother and their brother and their aunts and their really weird uncles that were hidden in the attic knew let's dance <laughs> dance this is the album that brought bowie to the american mainstream not the british mainstream but the american mainstream kind of permanently in a way that that young americans only sort of haltingly did and then he went off into this weird zone uh but but that you know this is his greatest commercial success i think it's a one like 10 million copies or something like that more than any other bowie album and yet sort of almost universally agreed these days that it's not one of his great records at all. And I don't know where you guys stand on that. I think there is actually a lot to like about this record, but it's so different from Scary Monsters. Yeah, it really couldn't be more different. I mean, it is it is a great pop record. I think by the measures of most Bowie records, it it definitely comes up short. There are eight songs on it not overly long really the the album track version of let's dance is quite a bit longer than the single because it kind of goes on and on and on with the groove at the end but it 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 feels a little insubstantial the last song on uh, side one uh is uh, is what shake it or is that the, the last, the last song, song, it is the last song on, on side two it's the, yeah that's, it's not even really a song it's, it's without you yeah without you and side one and both of those songs are are very insubstantial mm -hmm. then you have the cat people kind of redo which isn't really as good as the original it's not even close uh, it's like i almost like how do they, how could they kind of like take the guts out of that thing and, yeah and and, and it's so when you when you listen to interviews with Nile Rodgers, he he's pretty explicit in saying like, look, Bowie came in with about five songs. We talked about what he wanted to do, and then I made his album. Mm -hmm. 
And Bowie kind of sat around outside the studio, in the studio, in the control booth, listening. And then he'd walk over and do his vocal part. And that was pretty much it. And Niall was a master of the pop hook. If you listen to the first side of Let's Dance, which has these three massive singles lined up one after the other in kind of reverse order of when they hit the charts, you have Modern Love, China Girl, and then Let's Dance. Each one of them begins with the most ear-catching hook you'll ever hear. First, Modern Love. And instantly, you know what that is. There's no denying that it's that song and it's no other song ever recorded. China Girl, with that, as we talked about in the second episode, the kind of totally cliched kind of Chinese music sound. And then Let's Dance, the title track begins with the Sims brothers doing their kind of, uh, you know, male vocal harmony. Uh, hey, hey, you think the, uh, you think the, Damon, do you think the three of us can, can, can get, get a little round? <laughs> we probably start. have to, you know, uh, have an instrument to get, to get the key uh, right. Uh, 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 <laughs> which is, of course, like, you know, it's, 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 it's so cheesy. And in fact, it like it's like it reminds me of "Twist and Shout" by the Beatles, right? Because mm-hmm. I feel like yeah, it's exactly. Except it thing. happens at the beginning. <laughs> exactly. Which you know what? I mean, that "Let's Dance" that song works. I can't. I I want to deny it. I want to say, "Oh no, spare me this pop crap." But I, every time I put on "Let's Dance," and in particular, I really like the unedited version, that seven and a half minute long one that's on the album. I am up for all seven and a half minutes of that. Ray Vaughn guitar on that. Stevie Ray Vaughn, you know, every yeah, right. I mean, favorite white boys blue guitar. He works. It works. It's set to this very slick New York pop sound. The contrast is actually pretty intriguing. Oh, absolutely. And you have to you have to say, look, this album packs a massive punch. It sounds great. As I said, tons of pop hooks, irresistible. Uh, Vaughn's guitar work is fabulous. Uh, all excellent musicians on it. A lot of them went on tour with him for the series Moonlight Tour, and they were fantastic on tour. So what you can say about the album is you take Bowie with his incredible songwriting gifts and obviously very shrewd pop instincts, and you put him with Nile Rodgers, and they kind of masterminded a pop, a huge pop hit, and it works as that. If after that he had then gone kind of in another left turn and gone into an artier direction, uh, things would have been very different. We'll get to that in a bit, that he did not do that. But as a standalone album, if you don't know what comes afterwards, you can definitely appreciate this record, I think. At least that's my view of it. Let's Dance leaves me uh, leaves me wanting a lot more. I, uh, you know, one of the reasons I didn't dive into Bowie for a long time is, is are, there, are these singles? I, I never 
liked uh i know jeff said you can't deny let's dance well i will deny it i i, I don't ah. like let's dance and especially the longer version i think the song makes its point sticks around a bit too long um I've you don't never... want to dance under the moonlight scott the serious to. moonlight i don't uh mm. i don't like the bowie version of china girl again never yeah ever well, liked it. well that, that, of course i was pretty adamant about that on our last episode the yes. one song that i've changed my mind about over the years and i will not deny is modern love uh, i mm-hmm. think that's the standout track from let's dance the, the leadoff track the third single uh that's a fantastic song and no i will not deny modern love from that amazing beginning that uh, Damon just talked about but chicken scratch guitar and Bowie whispering to you I know when to stay out and I know when to stay in get things done uh, into that opening verse it's got that lengthy circular chorus that kind of doubles back over itself a couple of times the horns burble throughout and then finally break through that sax solo at the end okay I'll give you this modern love is a great song anything else that that comes near it on this album uh damon mentioned shake it is total total filler uh without you again is essentially the same and now we're talking about an eight track album that includes uh, you know three covers essentially cat people china girl and then criminal and some of the originals aren't up to snuff and you have these two filler tracks so there's just not a lot here there's just not and yet it's sold like I, I, mad yeah, I will. I will have to speak up also in favor of modern love. I mean, that chorus is is just undeniable. Modern love walks on by me, walks beside me, gets me to the church on time. It's funny because on an album that's otherwise doesn't have any of those massive title pop hooks, that one just I kind of like almost wonder where it came from <laughs> from Bowie because it's not a co right. That wasn't like you know that it wasn't Niall Rogers who wrote that hook for him. He wrote that. He wrote that melody. It's really good puts my trust in god and man Mm. that one will stay with you and i also always remember the stupid music video which is like a live performance video in philly the the confetti falling from the roof and then there's like the the little crescent moon with the sunglasses on which is hilarious because that almost i feel like that's where the meme later came from with the crescent moon and the sunglasses giving you the thumbs up came from the modern love video um it's so um 
slick and and you know unapologetically pop but there's also some weirdness underneath the lyric i also i mean there, there are songs here that, that i wish worked better ricochet has a really good idea underneath it but there's something wrong about the production where all of a sudden it just keeps like you know sl- slashing into these uh, you know awkward drum breaks that don't work um and the underlying song produced in a different way i could see that being like a scary monsters track and, and like a highlight of the record but it isn't on let's dance i think actually ironically other than the singles the one that i like the most is the cover of criminal world which mm, is mm-hmm. from this uh obscure band called i, I believe it's called the metro um and they're like one of these bands, you know, that was inspired by like the Dolls, the New York Dolls, and also clearly by David Bowie himself during his Ziggy phase. And probably that's the reason why, you know, Bowie himself thought, like, hey, I can do this. And it's about all sorts of, you know, very taboo subjects, which you would never get if you listen to the very slick production on it. But the song itself is a solid song. It's a well-written song. It's a There's not much else here that that really hangs with me, and uh, I, I guess I always wonder, like, well, why was it such a massive hit then? I don't know. Um, I guess you can't deny Modern Love, and you can't deny Let's Dance, and and frankly, listen, you know, you and I and Damon, we all hate the China Girl version on this album, but apparently America <laughs> did. didn't. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes I mean, you I just have to video. deny. You have to you have oh to recognize God. that your tastes are not in the majority, right? I was I was at the perfect age, thirteen, to have the brand new MTV, and that you video know, for China Girl was absolutely ubiquitous. It was on like once an hour for like six months. Well, we romping around in the surf with that model, yeah. I don't very, think you can yeah, deny just, just, that yeah, everything aspect to the to the sales too is MTV nineteen eighty three was beginning to move units, and those were big videos. And David Bowie had that. Uh, you know, that Brian Setzer stray cat haircut, at least in the Modern Love video, um, good looking and, and you could dance to it and, and it popped on MTV as well. I, I don't think you can uh, you can uh, underplay the, the role that played in moving a lot of albums out the door, too. And, 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 uh, yeah, Dan? Yeah, I, all I wanted to add is to, to be a, a third person 
very much endorsing Modern Love. I think it's clearly the best song on the album. I loved it as a kid when I first heard it. I've loved it all along. I also want to single out in that song his vocals. I mean, he, he it's sort of unusual in this period of his career for him to really not just sing high, which he would do with the kind of thicker tone that he had developed by this point, mm-hmm. but he, he actually sings high in a in a kind of John Lennon-y way in this song, in a way that he really hadn't done a lot since like you know the early 70s and he really totally nails it so it it is a great pop track and i've I've always liked it a lot too so bowie was very honest about the fact that he felt like he made a mistake at this point that he'd gotten captured by the unexpectedly large audience that that let's dance brought him that you know all of a sudden holy crap i'm you know i'm scoring top 10 singles multiple on the same album i'm selling more records than ever he goes on the serious moonlight tour which you know i by the way i've heard in fact the, my favorite serious moonlight concert is is from the rehearsal stage where stevie ray vaughn hadn't yet been kicked out of the band <laughs> um it's really funny to hear him playing songs like red sails and look back in anger which is you know you kind of think about his guitar approach and then you think about that song and you're like well how does that work it, it maybe doesn't quite work but it's really intriguing i've got a great bootleg if you want to hit me up in the dms <laughs> um but uh uh you know he he felt like he had to keep the ride going and remember he's finally making money for himself he's finally building himself a nest egg after as i said you know what was the song fame about what you need you have to borrow you know he's been living on an allowance for a very long time and then making sort of pointedly on commercial music too for the second half of the decade uh and now all of a sudden he's experiencing that first taste of success and he's acknowledged he acknowledged just countless times you know later on throughout his career that you know this is where he made a real misstep and so like what does he do he's like i gotta put out another album that sounds like let's dance uh he, you know he's been touring for a year he comes right off the road and he puts out uh the greatest david bowie album of all time obviously <laughs> which is tonight 1984's tonight it went to number one in the united kingdom i always love to point that out they were just so high off of let's dance that they said he bought this site unseen and then they they probably had real recriminations does anyone have anything good to say about the almost unmitigatedly poor slop that is tonight absolutely not <laughs> I, I I have to tell the story because I introduced myself at the very beginning of the first episode it, with it with it, this period is crucial for my story of David Bowie because I was a 13 year old kid let's dance comes out he's everywhere that summer I told the story in the first episode of listening to this radio kind of retrospective of his career and hearing five uh, five years and and uh, all you pretty oh you pretty things and all these old Bowie tracks and totally falling for it and spending the whole summer learning about Bowie, listening to this old great music. And and I am so excited that there's going to be a new Bowie album and I now love him. I didn't love Let's Dance, but again, I had no reason to expect that he'd do another Let's Dance. And in truth, he did not because tonight <laughs> is not another Let's Dance. Tonight he only wishes is it was. <laughs> just, it is just so bad. If he had only five original tracks two of which were filler on let's dance here he has only two original tracks and the there are five pop songs and there's not a single one of them is any good 
Oh my gosh. It, I mean, we, 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 you know, we don't want to really get into the deep details of how bad this album is, but no, it, I, kinda do, I, I am hard pressed to think of an other artist who, I mean, the weird thing, the kind of almost self subversive thing about it is that he did, as you said, Jeff, want to kind of be really, you know, famous center of the world, huge superstar around the world and keep it going. But instead of taking a year or two, writing some great songs, working with a good producer and musicians and doing it right, it's almost like he wanted, wanted to do a crappy job because how he, how he could have thought that this would be an adequate follow-up to Let's Dance, I, I, I really can't say. I'll, I'll hand it off to someone else because all I can say is I was a very disappointed 14-year-old guy. Uh, well, the, only, <laughs> the only thing positive I have to say about this album is that it has one good single on it, um, and, and that is not Blue Jean, which is the one that's included on most of these compilations. I, I, I think in your notes, our pre-show notes, Damon, you said something, it sounds like it was written in five minutes, which I think yeah. is, is, is oh, just oh. about right. It, 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 it's, it's like his, probably his least worthy hit single single ever i would say uh it's that bad of course it did have certain shard success but oh how forgettable it is but there's another song this is the one piece of music on this album that i think is genuinely good and even there it's compromised and that's loving the alien which is a really interesting song about bowie's skepticism of sort of you know organized religion and like mm -hmm. things like the catholic church or like you know orthodox judaism or islam stuff like that and, and he phrases it in this point he phrases it in a very interesting way about in terms of like you know hey how do you know we're not we're all, we aren't all just loving the alien here and the music is actually really well written underneath the slop of the production i insist to this day there is a great song in there crying to get out um and you can hear it at least a little bit on this official version but it's just sad that it was never properly realized. I think he actually would later do like a uh, live versions of it on the reality tour, uh, where he would just strip it down and play it like almost as an acoustic, uh, number. And I think he would actually even say after that in interviews, like, this is how that song always should have sounded. And I think those acoustic versions are, are, are a little bit better, but there was a great song here that should have, should have come out and it wasn't produced the right way. Also, one last thing is I have to, I cannot pass. You know, one day, in fact, one day soon, we might do our, uh, maybe for a Patreon episode, the worst covers ever show. We've done our best covers ever show. 
because we, we really enjoy that, so we made it an official episode. But maybe we're going to have to talk about our worst cover songs ever. <laughs> and boy, you could take so many from this record alone, but I'm going <laughs> to choose God Only Knows. The Beach Boys, Brian Wilson's masterpiece, God Only Knows. Uh, if you could only hear this song the way I hear it in my ears, you would... You would both vomit and get hit with a horrible bout of diarrhea simultaneously. It's one of the worst things that he will ever record in his life. God only knows what I think without you. If you should ever leave me, my life would still go on, believe me. The world could show nothing to so what good would living do me? God only knows what I'd be without you. God only knows. He sounds like he's on SNL trying to pretend to be Engelbert Humperdinck. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's that bad. so bad. It's and and it is one of the great pop songs ever written, and he just destroys it. It's it's a crime. <laughs> Feel like piling on, Scott. You know, I, I thought maybe there's no uh, there's no reason to continue talking too much, but I, I'll just read a few notes from the album, and it doesn't even matter what song they're to because it just doesn't. Um, light reggae cocktail lounge duet. <laughs> um, background vocals sound like an off Broadway musical. Um, what is he doing vocally? Uh, there, there's, there's the dr- a lot of reggae on this album. It's bad. <laughs> there's the drum line from Billy Don't Lose That Number by Phil Collins. Yes. Um, it's on Dancing with the Big Boys. I'll tell you that one at least. Um, so yes, it's, it's, it's terrible. And in some ways it, it could be just thought of as a gift to Iggy Pop, who probably really, really appreciated the cash rolling in from what, six co-writes on a yeah. number one album in the UK. That could not have hurt Iggy Pop's feelings whatsoever. I mean... Uh, the thing that's so funny about this era is that if you had just heard, you know, this album, which follows Let's Dance, you would have thought, well, this is the end. This is the absolute n- nader for David Bowie, which is not true because that was actually coming a little later. Um, although people in, in my teen years, yes, I know it's just coming later, and an even like equally bad album at least. I'm but so- the thing is, the thing is, is that simultaneously around this era, starting after tonight. He there, there are these hints that no, David Bowie is not dead. He is still capable of making great pop music, great rock music, great art, and it's all found on these songs that he would end up giving away to various soundtracks instead of his actual albums. And I know that some of these are among Damon's favorite songs from this period, and and some of them are among mine as well. But I want to let Damon take it first. These soundtrack songs between this and Never Let Me Down. Which I think to me is the highlight of the pre-Tin Machine era David Bowie are these songs. I know there's one in particular that you just adore. Yeah, well, I, I'm a big fan of Absolute Beginners, which is a big old seven-minute, super romantic, 
uh, sort of upbeat ballady kind of song. Uh, this came out in 1986, attached to a movie of the same name, British. I actually saw it as a teenager, just because oh, wow. it was Bowie related. I can't remember a thing about it. It was it was utterly forgettable. Uh, but the song was the first, and again, going back to my personal Bowie story, it was the first time he released something where I thought, all right, this guy still has it. He can still do. Uh, a lovely melody, sing well, there's some some passion behind it, even if it's in a slightly schmaltzy kind of show tuney way with this track. It is it is kind of uh in it is in the uh the line with some older Bowie songs on in kind of like Aladdin Sane era, uh and and the Ziggy kind of theatrical big pop songs and that song really got me excited and because it was in 86 and then he had never let me down coming i had high hopes Leave it at that, and we'll <laughs> see. Uh, see my disappointment in a minute. I think Scott, did you you have a, a soundtrack song in this era that you also uh, are fond of? I did not actually, and I, I have to even admit that I've never heard the music from Labyrinth. So uh, I have. In fact, I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> well, here's the thing. First of all, I think it's funny. If anything, I think you know Damon is damning absolute beginners with faint praise. I think that is actually just a titanic track. It came very close to making my top five at the end. And, you know, I don't even think there's schmaltz in it. I just think it's actually, it has those touches of like the 50s sort of doo-wop sound to it. But it's also a modern track. And it's rare in this case because so many of Bowie's stuff from this era has terrible 80s production ticks. Absolute Beginners doesn't age like that. And the ending of it, 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 again, I love these unedited versions. I prefer them to the single on all eight minutes of Absolute Beginners to be playing in my ears. Uh, but he did, he did several others. He did This Is Not America uh, with Pat Metheny, of all things. Um, <clears throat> it's pretty good. Uh, he did uh, was it When the Wind Blows. It was the soundtrack to the one of the most disturbing animated films that you should ever, ever watch. And, and don't show it to your kids. You might think this is a kid's film, but it, it will scar them for life. It's about, you know, like old British people who survive a nuclear apocalypse and then slowly die and go crazy, you know, from the radiation poisoning. Yep, that's right. The, the, the British version of the day after. Exactly. Or, yeah. Or like, you know, um, 
uh, on the beach or something like that. It's just it's horrifying. <laughs> it's effective. I mean, it's a very good movie, but it's just no fun at all. Uh, but I'll tell you one that I actually have really come back around to and really found that I enjoy. And listen, this is uh, this is David Bowie and Labyrinth. And now, for a long time, you know, David Bowie's turn in the Jim Henson movie Labyrinth with all like, you know, it's not the happy Muppets, it's the freaky Muppets, right? That's that's what this film's rep is. But of course, you know, it has Jennifer Connelly and it has David Bowie as you know the the demon king. I can't remember what his his name is, the Goblin King or something like that. And of course, you know, he's strutting around with this this ridiculous wig and like these very very too tight pants uh, and uh, you know stealing Jennifer Connelly's baby uh, brother. Um, but there's some really good music he contributed to this album. Underground, which was sort of like the big hit single from it, uh, is a very good song. It's a gospel tune, which is a strange place for David Bowie to go. But the one that I've really always loved is As the World Falls Down, which is just a very sedate, pretty, um, restrained love song. I mean, it's pitched in those turns. Uh, it is one of those things that, again, unless you like really collect the obscurities or you know get like some of the you know more um, <clears throat> you know uh, you know you know obscure compilations, you probably haven't heard. But as the world falls down, legitimately good song. hundred times better than in, uh, anything that would be found on his next album, which ironically enough, it's not <laughs> said enough, is much more rocked up, but in the worst possible way. Uh, the irony of calling this album Never Let Me Down is just supreme to me because this is an album that lets me down in almost every single way. I can find maybe a couple of good things to say about it here and there, but not a lot. <laughs> so if you have any I, I good dare talk, anyone listening to this who doesn't know the opening track day in, day out, go oh, Google the, so video. I just watch watched, the video. I just watched Bowie that video Roller today. Skate, right? I, I watched it last night. I, I remember <laughs> it so well from being a teenager, and it is so much worse now. It was terrible then, and it's worse now. It's just appalling. Oh, boy. Yeah, this album. Now, this album, I can tell the the amusing story. So here's Bowie. He comes out with an album, and this is his first tour since I've been a Bowie fan. 
And I'm not a big fan of the album. I'm trying to like it. You know, at the time, the the super amped up bombastic 80s production, because as we all know, late 80s is when the what we think of as 80s production failings really take off and they're infecting everything in the music business. And, and it is all over this record. And I'm not that happy, but it, I'm in that moment. So I don't hear it as much as you hear it now. It sort of just sounds like kind of generic, drecky pop music of the era. But he's touring, and I'm excited. And it's the Glass Spider tour, and and I, I don't know if you want me to hold off on explaining what that was like in a sentence or two. Go for and, it now. Don't, I mean, don't, I mean, about the whole I, I drive, production. Yeah. I drive, for, I drive uh, from Southern Connecticut to Giant Stadium with my younger brother, who's also a big Bowie fan, and we're there in the old Giant Stadium, and there's this giant like spider sort of looking thing uh you know the head of the spider is way up high above the stage and kind of drapey legs with lights in them looking like christmas lights pretty much not looking like impressive in any way just looks goofy <laughs> and then the show starts and they're actors on multiple levels of the stage and dancers and lassos you know looping bowie into a lasso and pulling him around the stage and the actors are talking reciting lines that you can't hear it's just the whole thing was just a crashing pretentious disaster it was so bad just dreadful incoherent decadence no soul the one thing from the show that i liked at the time and i've heard it on the live album of it that is now available the first encore began with bowie way up at the top of the spider head and did a kind of full ballad piano-based version of time from aladdin sane and that was very good that was a that was like a, a big old nugget brought out there you know 13 14 years later and uh he really nailed that one song but it sort of ends when he's going la 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 he's like lowered by a Derek through the, the head <laughs> of the spider and Good so he's Lord. like hovering 30 feet above the stage singing with his big poofy 80s hair just just sad sad I'm, sad moment i've never seen the video there's a there is apparently like a um a dvd available that you can you check out to like see what it's like but i i did check out the music the glass spider release and like there are some interesting choices on the set list there's like all the mad men lots of you know, where the yeah, hell they that, figure out up the hill backwards up the hill backwards good. right and those are good songs but they're not good here i mean i guess you know listen peter frampton may not have been like you know after having like you know adrian blue and carlos alomar and <laughs> you know stevie ray vaughn maybe maybe rob you know peter frampton was not the best way to go for never let me down i will say this there are still some songs on here that i actually am okay with most of them are on the first half um Day in, day out is just so embarrassing. Time Will Crawl is an okay song. And I think it's even better when this is an album that David Bowie always felt regrets about. And so he actually gave permission to Reeves Gabrels, who we'll talk about soon, and a couple of his other collaborators to basically re-record an entire new version of Never Let Me Down after his death. So there's the Never Let Me Down 2018 remix, which has all of the basic original vocal tracks and maybe sort of like, you know, the acoustic guitar rhythm beds, uh, but has otherwise been redone 
and it's more effective an album there but still can't entirely be saved time will crawl is one of the successful ones i have always done i've always like never let me down the title track which i think was the last thing recorded for the album it's just like a last second thing it's very john lennony very just very jealous guy and the, and the last and co-write that alomar would have in his time with Bowie. yeah yeah, and also have to say I love Zeros. Uh, yes, which is, Zeros which is, is the one song. Yeah, it's not Heroes, <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but it isn't a zero either. It's a decent song. But then, like this is the album. Oh Christ, this is the album that has Mickey Rourke appearing as a guest artist on it as a rapper. That's not a joke, folks. Shining Star, Making My Love. Oh, Christ, we're going to have to drop the clip in here, aren't we? Shining Star has Mickey Rourke just jumping in in the middle of the song with a little rap break. If you ever thought, you know, Mickey Rourke, let's put it this way. Mickey Rourke was obviously pretty bad as a boxer given how much his face got beaten up after he got into the ring. Uh, he was even worse as a rapper. <laughs> that, that is to be the quintessence of what is so horribly comically wrong about Never Let Me Down. Even that Frank from the dummy run gang worked heister hit for 10 G's flat their heads out of shape in the name of Trotsky shouldn't fame Hitler cash down. No hope heroes cover this page with deaths in hell and fingers in blood I actually have next to Shining Star so many bad ideas in one song. That's just, <laughs> that's just one of them. Mickey Rourke is just one of them. Uh, I know oh Jeff God. and I. Jeff and I have both read this book when we were young, and I think it, it was called the, the Fifty Worst Albums of All Time. Right. And that was my first exposure to Never Let Me Down. I think it's in the top three, a book written in probably the mid-90s. Uh, right. had, had David Bowie's Never Let Me Down as one of the worst albums of all time. And so, uh, you know, prepping for this, I, I mean, I didn't want to listen to it at that point. So prepping for the show is the first time I gave it a full listen. And um, I, I, I can't really argue with its place on the list. Um, Let's explain bad. this to you folks. This is an album that is so bad that... David Bowie actually dropped a song that was on the original release track listing called Too Dizzy and has re refused and his estate refuses to ever release it again. <laughs> All right. It's that bad. I mean, how, I actually could, forgot like, every, every fart David Bowie has made in the studio has been released on CD and these lovingly curated boxed sets on the on the 1983 through 1987 box set. They still didn't release Too Dizzy, even though it's an official part of this record. That is how bad it is. If you were teaching a, a, a course at like Berkeley School of Music on how not to produce rock music, you could use this as a kind of negative example for the course. It is so everything wrong with late '80s pop production is committed on this album. It is. It is just terrible especially day in day out the lead single it, it, yeah. that and, and really the whole second side is just terrible it's just awful irredeemably and, bad and he knew it was too he knew he needed some sort of artistic emetic to purge all of the, the the bad 80s production and all of the laziness and all the mistakes that he had made throughout this entire era and what did he end up doing well he ended up joining a band 
and I don't mean fronting a band. I wish he had just decided to front a band. That would have been a lot better, frankly. Uh, it would have cured some of the errors of this era. Uh, he actually joined a band and just said, I'm just another guy in this band, the guy who happens to write most of the songs and sings lead, of course. <laughs> and, and that is a heavy metal group. Well, I don't know if it's quite heavy yeah. metal, but it's yeah. hard rock, guitar-based rock. And the name of that band is Tin Machine. is that this is the beginning of his collaboration with a guy who I think, you know, David Bowie saved himself. This man was self-possessed. He understood when he was making mistakes and going wrong, and he, he was a good course corrector. But somebody who really helped him dig himself out of the hole that he found himself in is a, a guy named Reeves Gabrels, who was, I think, the, the husband of his, like, uh, you know, uh, publicity manager in the United States. And, you know, he... he listened to a demo tape that he gave to him and he said I like the way this guy plays guitar very avant-garde very non-commercial very noisy and uh, you know oftentimes veering towards the atonal but I think also with a, with a good sense of an artistic balance as well and he brought him into this band and then of course what did he do he had to recruit Iggy Pop's rhythm section which is you know Hunt Sales and uh, gosh I can't even remember what the other Tony's name is Tony Sales, the guy who plays bass. Who these guys are basically just, you know, like yahoos. No offense, uh, they're basically just. There's a song called "Stateside." It tells you everything you need to know about the Sales Brothers, uh, and that, of course, immediately compromised the idea, the concept of Tim Machine right off the bat. And a lot of people really do also hate this era of David Bowie just <laughs> as much as they hate the other earlier era of David Bowie. But I will go to bat. With the two Tin Machine albums from 1989, and then the second one is in 1991, Tin Machine 1 and uh, Tin Machine 2. I feel like if you combined the best of these two records, you'd have one of his greatest albums of this entire year, and maybe, you know, throughout his entire career. Uh, but unfortunately, you have, uh, you know, mixed in with the good, you have Crack City, and you have, uh, you know, Stateside, and you have, you know, some really, really, really terrible video crime, Sacrifice Yourself. There's some bad, bad music on these albums. But in between, though, there's, there's also some really, really compelling stuff. For the first time, it feels like Bowie's, like, as I said, this is an emetic. He's reclaiming some sort of artistic sense of self-position. And, and, and I think the, the first and best place you hear it is on the song I Can't Read, mm -hmm. which is off of Tin Machine 1. And it, 
Gabrell's guitars say everything. This is a very strange, almost trip-like guitar approach. And, uh, you know, he's saying, I can't read shit anymore. Um, you shouldn't even have to bleep that because, frankly, every time I heard it, I thought he was saying, I can't reach it anymore, <laughs> uh, which was, I thought was like, a commentary on his, uh, like, you know, his artistic decline and his attempts to claw himself back. But um, there are good things on both of these records, but you do have to pick among the turds to find the gems. I don't know a book from Countdown I don't care which shadow gets me All I've got is someone's face Money goes to I mean, I, I agree with the overall assessment. If you look at the two records as a whole, there's a lot of filler, uh, a fair amount of junk. But in the scheme of his career, as we've been describing it, these albums, I think, are really important, very crucial. I know that, again, as a young fan or wannabe fan by this point, um, I was so thrilled to hear the first Tin Machine album. Uh, the first song I heard was the single Under the God, which is not a very good song, but it starts in incredibly well. Very aggressive, uh, hard rock sound. And then when I got the record, you hear songs like Prisoner of Love, I Can't Read, Bus Stop, Baby Can Dance. There are a few other really good ones. This was uh, Bowie was back. He was he w had cut through the the slick as a slime ball late 80s production and it was just guitar bass and drums no apology about just making a bunch of noise no self-consciousness about trying to write a hit single uh and i it was such a breath of fresh air I, even though i didn't love all of it i could tell all right this is a little more like the Bowie that I grew to love from the 70s, who would just say, I don't give a crap what anyone's doing in the music business. I want to do this right now and see what I can make of it. And it was it was very thrilling for me at the time. And in retrospect, again, in the scheme of the story we've sort of been telling about the, the 80s with him, I see these these records as a kind of exorcism or a kind of trip to musical rehab, where he's just getting back in touch with his his with if not fully his art at least the impulse to create something for its own sake rather than looking over his shoulder at the charts and what's selling so for that i think really valuable this i'm not i'm not quite sure that as jeff said if you if you sort of take the cream of both that you'd have one of the greatest albums of this era i'm not sure it rises quite to those heights but 
it sounds a lot better. I mean, you can listen to it and not be embarrassed and sort of reaching for the uh, reaching for the skip button as you might with Never Let Me Down or or Tonight. It's produced a lot better, especially for what was still you know 1989. Um, a lot of spontane- spontaneity on this record. You know, part of it was they they go in and and like the demo was the album. Like whatever we bash out this first take, that that's it. That's the album. That's what we're gonna do. And so you, you end up with this varying quality from track to track sometimes, uh, stark uh, quality differences. Uh, on, the, on the first one, Jeff mentioned I Can't Read, which I think is is probably the best cut on either of these albums. I like the first track on the first album, Heaven's In Here, which uh, sort of cops the uh, guitar figure from uh, Love Me Two Times by the Doors. I think it goes on a little too long is my only problem with it. Yeah. I think if they edited it a bit, it'd be better. Yeah. Um, I, I agree, but it's a good opening track. I agree it goes on a little long, but I, I'm, I'll, I'll put some chips down on that one as well. Yeah, that got me at least interested in what was going to come uh, for the rest of the album. dance later on i think uh works pretty well on that second album there's one called uh goodbye mr ed toward the back of the record that has a pretty nice one of gentle his finest melodies uh, there's a lyric there i mean this is you know the first album apparently bowie wasn't really allowed to go back and revise his lyrics right that was the sales brothers saying oh screw you just lay it down live and we go with it <laughs> because it's authentic rock and roll which is kind of a dumb attitude um but on that second one, Bowie put his foot down and he said, no, 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 no. Actually, I'm going to think a little bit more about this. And you do get some really, really thoughtful, impressionistic lyrics, particularly on that song. So the line is like, some things are so big, they make no sense. History's so small. People are so dense. Someone sees it all. Goodbye, Mr. Ed. And what he's talking about, of course, is like sort of this uh, sort of nice, you know, happy 50s era of American complacency uh, that is, you know, obviously faded away by the time this song has been recorded in 1991 we're in a completely different era and uh, it works Someone sees it all 
I actually think, um, I mean, I'll, I'll let you guys finish up, but I actually think that uh, Tin Machine 2 may be better than the first one, which is a real minority opinion. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm backwards on that. I, I think the first yeah. one's better than the second. The second one, I, I don't like the production quite as much. It's not garish or anything, but I think it is a little more polished and not quite as raw, which to me is the appeal of doing this thing in this rock band. Yeah. And that's sort of sanded away on Tin Machine 2, so I don't, I don't like it quite as much. Right. I mean, there's, there's stuff on Tin Machine 1 that was really good. There's a song called Prisoners of Love, or Prisoner of Love, that's actually really just like a really spiffy pop song if you listen to it. You never would think in the middle of this this album that has a reputation of being just like a, a cacophonous bunch of noise. That's a classic little hook. And again, it, it ends so effectively as well. Yeah, that's very, that's very good. Uh, Bus Stop is like a minute and a half long little gem of a song on, on the second side of the first album. Uh, you know, I wish it went on a little longer and was developed, but as a kind of demo take, that's like a, the germ of a great pop song. Not Jesus, the kind in a vision And offered you redemption from sin I'm not saying that I don't believe you But are you sure that and then on the second one i i don't like it as much uh, which is odd for me usually i would be more uh, drawn to a little bit less of an edge, but um, I just don't think the songs are really up to f- snuff as much as I would like. Baby Universal, the opening track, which was its you know ostensible single, though it didn't go anywhere. That's a solid song. I like that. And Goodbye, Mr. Ed, uh, as as uh, both of you discussed, is an excellent track. Uh, the rest of it, not so much. But I, if if those two songs were moved onto the first album and they you cut like maybe five of the weakest songs that would be a very solid bowie album uh you know as again it's it's a band effort and so that adds a whole other layer of kind of weirdness to it but but uh, again in the scheme of what we've been discussing this that imaginary tin machine album at at that time (laughs) in say around 1990 would have made me very happy and the first tin machine album made me pretty happy and i had high hopes for what might come next you know what doesn't make me happy is that god-awful cover of Roxy Music's If There Is Something on the second album. I mean, that's one of my favorite Roxy Music songs of all time. It, we obviously did an episode on them a couple years back and explained in great detail how I love everything about it. Um, that's just the absolute butchery. And then there's the, the two Hunt Sale songs. You hear him singing blues. Hunt Sale <laughs> singing stateside in his most sort of like completely generic blues shouter voice and like this is not a david bowie album anymore i'm crying why and of course if you ever heard the live album they extend that thing to eight and a half minutes long because that's just what you'd want to hear right eight and a half minutes of stateside sorry is terrible but there are little hidden gems like i like one shot quite a bit 
Amlapura, which is a, a great semi-instrumental. And then Shopping for Girls, which is actually, again, another really, really dark and, and interesting lyric. Of, you know, David Bowie's getting a little bit more kind of concerned or interested in cultural commentary at this time. That's a song mm-hmm. about, you know, you know, you know the sex tourism industry for underage girls in Thailand, of all things. I think it came from uh, Gabrels' wife, who was the you know, person who introduced Reeves to David Bowie in the first place, had been an investigative journalist prior to you know, joining up with the Bowie organization, and she'd written an article about that. And so, like, yeah, that's a really kind of a creepy and disturbing song, but it's set to a really, I think, compelling musical background as well. But again... You know, if you could just edit this thing, you know, <clears throat> take these two albums, you know, get get a one really tight forty-five minute record, uh, it would be, I think, really stunning. Instead, we're left with the compromises we have, and I think Bowie himself realized at this point, it's like, well, okay, I did my little, my little purgatory here, you know, or as Damon might put it, I got my exorcism right. I have cast the devil out, and now I am ready to go back and make music on my own. And of course, the first thing he does is he goes and make a really slick pop record with Nile Rodgers. <laughs> it's like, oh, the cycle is starting again. Is this, is this another Let's Dance that we're getting back into? Uh, no, it wasn't quite completely. I think this is a pretty decent album. I won't call it a great album, but I do have a lot of good things I can say in favor of Black Tie, White Noise, which is the album that was inspired about a couple of things. First of all, his wedding to Iman, the supermodel, um, uh, and also his uh, you know, experience of the Los Angeles riots, the Rodney King riots that he witnessed when he was staying in America at the time. And, uh, you know, that's the title track. It's, it's Black Tie, White Noise is definitely about that with uh, the guest vocalist who has the hilariously memorable name of Albie Schur, um, <laughs> who says, you know, there's got to be some blood, uh, but we're going to make it through. That's a pretty grim forecast. Probably not wrong either. Um, but this is a very slick album again. And I think it's actually the last truly slick album he was going to make for a very long time. But I think there's a lot to like here. I love both versions of The Wedding, which is the music mm-hmm. David Bowie wrote for his wedding, for his wedding ceremony. You know, you know Iman and him were both like Christians, but he, they didn't want to, they weren't, they didn't belong to any denomination. So they weren't going to, you know, like, you know, do Here Comes the Bride or anything like that. So David was just like, hey, why don't I write some music? Which, of course, you can do if you're David Bowie. Good song. I also really like that cover of Night Flights. Only thing that lets it down is that there's just a bit too slick. Um, a very very early '90s sort of drum and bass uh, groove to those songs, uh, where you just feel like if he had a, a more creative or daring rhythm section, a lot of these things would sound better. Uh, but I think actually the best song on this thing is an instrumental. It's called "Looking for Lester." That's a great and one. Yes, it's great. It's got it's got it's got Garson on it. Mike Garson coming back into the fold after a long time, uh, being away from David Bowie, playing these really kind of like crazy, um, like piano uh, jazzy piano weird chords, and then it's also got Lester Bowie. It's just a fantastic trumpeter playing on it, and that is actually I think of all things. The best song on this album is an instrumental. I don't really mean that as an insult because I'm going to be talking about how the best songs on the next album are also instrumentals. So what do you guys think of this one before we move on to what I think is one of the most underrated records of his career?
don't have that much to say about it. I I will say that I, I'm not a fan of black tie white noise. I just don't think the songs are here. I think it's mostly about texture and feel, and that's never going to be something that makes me that excited. I will also, though, I concede to Bowie that although I don't like this album very much and I don't put it on very much, I have some respect for it in a way that I don't for tonight or never let me down. Like this, I like some songs on those albums a little bit as songs if I can imagine them redone in a much better way, but I find the albums themselves insipid and, and just, just almost unlistenable. Whereas black tie, white noise, I can, hear i can hear someone trying to chip away make something creative new fresh artistic even if it isn't for me and so in that respect it's another step in in the process of healing if you will i mean in the end you're everyone is going to hear that my sort of take on this era of bowie is you basically have you have the fair amount of success of let's dance it's okay artistically not a total misfire but then he's sort of off track and doesn't really hit his groove again in my view for about two decades <laughs> and so none of the albums to come for a long time <laughs> until maybe an hour from now um i really love um, and I certainly do not love black tie, white noise, but it's a very interesting kind of circuitous path toward getting his mojo back as an artist. And and I can respect that he's he's making that forward progress, even if I don't really want to go there with him on this album. There, there's an odd present past uh, conjunction on this album in which clearly uh, Bowie's embracing newer sounds dance beats, some electronic stuff. Uh, I'll be sure, as Jeff mentioned, is on the record. And at the same time, is sort of grasping back. Uh, Mick Ronson plays on the album on a track. Now Rogers right. is here. He's covering Scott Walker. Uh, Garçon, the piano player, is, is here on looking for, for Lester. So you have a little bit of that, a little bit of this, and plus the, the, the wedding and sort of domestic tranquility that Jeff had mentioned previously. And I think it's okay. I think it's an okay album um looking for lester is a highlight jeff talked about that the other one i want to uh spotlight is one called miracle good night it mm. probably has the most restrained production on the entire album and it has an upbeat optimistic feel to it it's a it's sort of an ode to his wife i would imagine uh, scanning the lyrics and late late in the track there's this really just neat little four-bar guitar solo from Nile Rodgers that sort of is the cherry on top of the Sunday. Uh, but I'd certainly point to Miracle Goodnight as, as a real highlight on Black Tie, White Noise. Morning star, you're beautiful Yellow diamond high Swing around my little room Miracle
not a, it's not offensive to listen to uh, as some of the past releases, but I don't think it grabs anyone the way that he hoped, certainly. I, I think this was certainly designed as a more commercial album, one that might hit the charts once again. And now we come to what I am absolutely convinced, and I know I stand alone on this because we've discussed it, of course, in the pre-show run-up. I'm absolutely convinced this is the most underrated David Bowie album of all time. And in fact, this is the David Bowie album that most people who think they know every David Bowie album don't even realize exists. (laughs) And the name of it, of course, is The Buddha of Suburbia. He recorded it right on the heels of Black Tie, White Noise. It was originally, it it, it started when, um, you know, a guy who was interviewing him, a guy named Hanif Qureshi, uh, said, uh, hey, I'm doing an upcoming miniseries for the BBC called The Buddha of Suburbia. And it's about a Pakistani kid growing up in Bromley, which is where David Bowie grew up himself. And, you know, navigating his way, you know, through life. And then one of his friends goes and becomes a rock star. It's a pretty fun little little miniseries. I watched it, of course, because I was interested in the, sh- in the album. Um and then, you know, Bowie said, he initially said to Bowie, it's like, hey, can I just use some of your old songs? And Bowie was like, yeah, sure, no problem. And they said, hey, maybe you might want to do something too. And Bowie was like, I was hoping you would ask. And so he ends up writing just this one song initially, uh, which is the title track. And then he decides that, you know what, why don't I make an entire record around this? Um, the original soundtrack was only just the title track, The Buddha of Suburbia, which is a really great pop song. And I think kind of the first time I hear the Bowie that I'm going to end up like falling back in love with again on albums like uh, you know, Heathen or Reality or The Next Day, kind of coming back and reemerging. But a lot of the rest of this album is instrumentals and very, you know, very quiet um pop rock tunes and uh you know strange little experiments uh that end up reminding me far more than anything he had ever done you know after 1979 of that whole low heroes lodger era uh there's a song on here called strangers when we meet that he would actually end up liking so much because this album disappeared nobody even realized it was a David Bowie album so he said screw it I'm going to just do it again for the next album Outside it's okay on Outside but it's much better and quieter here on the Buddha Suburb.
there are just great, incredibly you know, moody instrumentals like South Horizon, The Mysteries, uh, Ian Fish. Uh, and then there is, I think, one of the secretly most underrated songs of his entire career, which is called Dead Against It. Mm. And this is the one that I will just say, like, first, you listen to this entire album. This entire, it's not a very long album. It's, it's not like, you know, it's not like some sort of 75-minute bloated thing. It's just 55 minutes. Uh, and, and because a lot of the instrumentals in particular just sort of take their time and develop their way. Um, this is a record where you're going to hear songs that you just didn't know that David Bowie was capable of doing in 1993 because nothing that he had done before it and then nothing that he did immediately after it sounds anything like it. It got lost and I command the world, all of you listening, I command my people to revive this album, revive its legend, send it to your friends, check it out yourself. I don't care if Damon and Scott don't agree with me. I think this is just a record that, you know, if you take in the totality of David Bowie's career, um, I want to praise this one as much as I ever want to praise the man who sold the world. I mean, I, again, I don't want to diss it, uh, but that's mostly because you better not. it's because it's only a soundtrack. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, I mean, the title track is definitely a good song. It definitely has the sound of classic David Bowie, his vocal quality, uh, the kind of the, the more stripped down song based arrangement is certainly much more like kind of classic Bowie from the seventies than black tie white noise was. Um, so that's a good song. Uh, Jeff is definitely right. Dead against it is a solid song. Strangers. When we meet, I also like a lot, although I prefer the version on uh, outside uh, myself. It's a little, uh, the arrangement I just find a little more compelling there um, and suiting uh, the melody a little bit more. Um, the rest of it, though, as I sort of you know got in trouble on the last uh, episode, uh, I, I'm never going to be really grabbed by soundtracky instrumental tracks. I just find them sort of like uh, just uh, ambient background music that don't grab me. Uh, so I can't really uh, have uh, strong opinions about them one way or the other. It just strikes me as kind of program music from a soundtrack. So I defer to Jeff's judgment that if, <laughs> if you have aesthetic criteria for judging that, and this is very good at that, I will concede that uh, he's probably right. 
gave it a listen and then gave it another listen after Jeff had praised it so highly. And no, I, I don't hear what Jeff hears, but it's okay. He made a passionate uh, plea for it. And I, what I will agree with is, as, as Damon did too, Dead Against It. That's the song to, to grab off of here. There's this whirlwind of synths and sequencers and yeah. thin drum sound throughout. Uh, and yes, two strangers when we meet. I, I think the version here is, is stronger. Um, th- those two, I'd certainly say, are worth seeking out. But the album as a whole, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like as much as Jeff does. Well, I guess that brings us to the album that I have tried harder in my entire life to love, to like even, uh, but have failed every single time, um, which is Outside. This is his big reunion with Brian Eno. This is also a this much I have to give him credit for. This is an uncompromising left turn into just outright non-commerciality. This is a 75-minute long album, which, again, you know my theory about you know the length of records. And I'm always going to just look at a 75-minute long album that isn't Exile on Main Street <laughs> and, and just say, like, why, God, no, no, no. But not only that, this is harsh, dissonant. It, it's based around an entirely um, opaque concept, which is a, apparently like the concept of art crime, you know, in, in, in some sort of dis- semi-dystopian near future where people are like, you know, he's inspired by his association with and, and knowledge of the works of artists like Damien Hirst, who would do that thing where he would like, you know, vivisect a cow and then suspend it in formaldehyde and post it in a giant aquarium on a wall in an art gallery and and you know hey here's million dollar art and you know hey people are suckers for any old stupid thing i i am never been a fan of that style of art but we took that idea and ran with it and said what if we started dissecting and vivisecting human beings and using them as artwork uh very dark theory right and uh it, if you got that from the plot of this album, then you're a better man than I am. <laughs> because this thing is, you know, I, we joked in our first episode about how like how hard it is to to p- pull a narrative structure out of Ziggy Stardust. Well, good luck with this thing, this hallucinatory, you know, miasma of insanity. Um, there are some songs on here that I have a certain brutal effectiveness. Heart's filthy lesson. That's good. Which I remember. I remember David Fincher used at the end of Seven. Um, that's a good song, even though it's just such a non. It, it's no, there's nothing pleasant about it. It's anti-pop, right? The, the, you know, you know, it's just the hissing heart's filthy lesson, and this industrial dark, dark beat. And that, to me, is is basically the story of Outside. It, it's a noble failure, but I, to me, I've never been able to get past the fact that I just think that it is a failure. Between us 
by that i thought you might have really enjoyed outside you know i love the art rock stuff and yet yeah. i'm sorry i couldn't grab onto this and one. perhaps really perversely i liked it a lot um <laughs> now, now look the, the narrative i don't get we always keep you guessing on political <laughs> i don't get the narrative and so the estimation of this as being a very good album is sort of almost solely based on the musical side of it right but I think it's really good. Uh, I, I, I think clearly teaming up with Eno again and having him involved in the process did lift Bowie up a bit in his creative uh, juices. And this is a bit different than the past collaborations because, as, as Damon pointed out to us on episode two, you know, even during the, the Bowie-Eno uh, team in that late 70s run, Eno wasn't getting a ton of co-writes, right? He was involved. He was a facilitator, as I called him. But he wasn't getting co-writes on the on the songs. On outside, he's got a co-write on almost everything, and you know there is an influence. Like the heart's filthy lesson, I I think you hear a lot of Eno there with that slinky industrial sound that he would sort of bring yeah. to other people in a the decade. There's a little bit of U2 type stuff uh, from from that era creeping in on a sound like heart's oh, yeah, filthy the lesson. The title track, the whole like opening yeah. to out, the album with outside, that's like completely Zeropa yeah, by right, any right. other name. Yep. Um, uh, Hello Space Boy is, uh, is, a, is a Reeves Gabrell song. It was an instrumental that they turned into this just really dirty, heavy, like Pixies meets Nine Inch Nails sort of sound. And I think Bowie gives a very quality vocal performance on that track too. I think the best song on Outside is one called I Have Never Been to Oxford Town and it might be one of the greatest uh, songs of this uh 30, 40, 40 year, 40 year period or so that we're covering. <laughs> we pretty today. ambitious on this episode. Yes. 40. Uh, man, that, that is a great track. It's got a great, it's a great rhythm track. Uh, Carlos Alomar plays, doesn't get a co-write, but his play. And I think you hear his influence a bit too. It's, it's like his last great moment playing with David Bowie. Uh, but I have not been to Oxford town as one. I definitely would, would recommend. later on uh i think through these architects eyes is a really good song and again it's way too long it's 75 minutes i don't disagree with that and i'm not uh gonna lie to you and say that i don't know what's happening don't know what is happening here thematically lyrically but from a musical perspective i think outside is extremely strong with some very uh very good highlights yeah um <laughs> i will 
I will, uh, you know, Jeff said earlier with absolute beginners, I damned with faint praise. How about this faint praise? It's interesting. Uh, <laughs> that's about all I can say. I mean, I, again, as I said with black tie, white noise, it doesn't speak to me, frankly, by this point in Bowie's career. By now, if we're doing Damon's life along with all of this, I'm now in my mid-20s. I, by this point, concluded I just don't like Bowie anymore. He's, like, gone off in this <laughs> other direction, and that's not for me. Um, and now, of course, by the time we get to the early 2000s, that totally changes again, and I'm right back on board. But at this point in the mid-90s, I'm thinking, all right, I don't, I don't, again, have sort of artistic contempt for this the way I was starting to in the late 80s with what he was doing. And I respect that he's trying to do something new. It's just not something that I want to really listen to. And frankly, 75 minutes of an album called, and it isn't called Outside. Right. It is called <laughs> the numeral one dot outside. Because you always love it when, when an artist is putting out a record and they announce at the very beginning before they even know how successful it ends up being, this is going to be the first part of a multi-part statement. And then, of course, it almost invariably doesn't yeah. get filled right. that's why you never really that's why you never call it greatest hits volume one same reason yeah you, you'll never get a volume two exactly so um you know again i don't i don't have contempt for it i like some meandering moments in it i think strangers when we meet which we already hear was written for another setting for the <gasps> suburbia soundtrack that's a solid song uh, Hello, Space Boy, when done live, can be a very powerful kind of pounding industrial tune. Uh, but the rest of it, I just sort of like shrug my shoulders and think, wow, that seems really kind of pretentious and obscure. I don't really know what you're trying to do there, buddy. It's just not for me. So uh, I, I will, I think, leave it at, at that. I mean, I think the criticism that you can sort of make about these these albums, sort of as Bowie was reemerging from his hibernation, is that, well, you know, what is he guilty of? Perhaps he's listening too hard to a lot of – he and his collaborators are listening a little bit too hard to their younger peers. So you hear so much Nine Inch Nails on outside. Um, and you hear, uh, for that matter, so much drum and bass on his next album, Earthling. Now, this has always been, for, just just for me at least, the Bowie album. There, these next two Bowie albums are the ones that I have the most difficulty getting into. I've just never been able to to to, to wrap myself around most of the music on Earthling. Although I know that I'm actually, um, you know, in a critical minority here because this one got a lot of praise. I'll I'll say this that. Uh, I'm Afraid of Americans is a classic, mm, mm -hmm. and, and it, it's a fantastically funny and entertaining song about the sort of the Americanization of popular culture around the world, everyone, the McDonaldization of culture.
but there's so much more of this stuff, which is very drum and bass heavy, you know, and you know, again, with the predictable sort of Mark Platy, Nine Inch Nails influences, this doesn't do it for me. Um, but again, you know, that the reason that we have you folks on this show is to tell me I'm wrong. Well, I don't want to say you're wrong. I do understand in the same way that Outside was not for me. I did not. When this album came out, I did not think that this would be for me. I had read it's industrial, it's drum and bass, it's jungle. Like, this is not my kind of music. And when I put it on at the time and to this day, I think under that very distinctive sound that he was embracing on this record there are some really strong songs here mm -hmm. and strong in a way that i hadn't heard and i still think it's true have not heard for a very long time before it um little wonder the leadoff track if that were done as a more traditional Bowie kind of arrangement in the 70s. I think we'd all recognize really solid Bowie song. Battle for Britain, I think, is a kind of masterpiece. This actually might be in my, my final list. It is kind of all of those things about this album that you would not think I would like, uh, like those, you know, industrial drum and bass, jungle. All of it is in there on that track. It has like broken digital editing throughout it crazy bursts of drums and hyper distorted electric guitar chords and then there's a kind of break where it falls away and mike garson is doing an aladdin sane style freeform piano solo in the middle <laughs> but I mean, I love, I actually love all of that, but it's also wedded to an extremely compelling song with a great melody, great chorus, uh, very typically Bowie, strange, chromatic chord uh, chart behind the melody. Uh, and it, it just works. You put it all together. He also has his, it, on both that and uh, Little Wonder, his kind of classic, very cockney, thick British accent on the vocal, which I think is effective. And the last uh, track that I'll really plug, Dead Man Walking is a great Bowie song. Again, you have to get past and be able to accept that it has this pounding kind of dance club throbbing beat to it where it feels like you're in a nightclub. But underneath it, with the, all the kind of uh, crazy keyboards and throbbing bass, is a really strong song with a great chorus, uh, very interesting, compelling lyrics. Uh, and, um, so I, I think this is, this is half of a great album. I mean, I think on the whole, by the time you get to the end, you're like, oh God, enough. I have a headache. About if you know, on a mix of mine where I do Bowie, I can definitely put those three tracks plus I'm Afraid of Americans from this and feel like they stand up to his best stuff from the rest of his career. That's the how I see it at least. 
So I, I've got to go from telling you how much I liked outside to telling you that this, I think, is his worst uh, record outside of tonight and never let me down from this era. I really don't like Earthling. Uh, the only track I have something good to say about, Jeff had already mentioned, I'm Afraid of Americans. That's a good song. The rest here are really, really hard for me to get my arms around, and it does have to do with that uh, decision to, to go heavy into that drum bass, prodigy, techno sort of sound. And I guess to Damon's point, and I'll see that this might be a possibility if I gave it more time, these songs sound like songs that have this this these beats slapped on top of them they, they don't yes, even it feels it feels like it's just been slathered on top of something that was right. written for a different style it feels fake it feels like they're not supposed to go together and maybe if i dug a little deeper i'd find those songs that damon is talking about uh sort of you know shine, shine them up underneath all that sludge but i can't do it um i, I don't hear him opening up new avenues uh, you know, when it comes to the songwriting, it sounds really of the moment uh, of, uh, what, 1997, I guess. Uh, Reeves Gabrels gets, I think, six co-writes here. He's becoming a, a bigger part of the songwriting process here. And man, I uh, I do not like Earthling. The funny thing about, you know, this era is that if you thought that this was like, you know, for, you know think about the transition from, uh, you know, black tie, white noise, very slick, outside, whoa. Earthling, double whoa. <laughs> Where did you expect David Bowie to go next? And of course, he goes next to ours, which is such a curious album. It's funny, among all the hardcore David Bowie fans I know, um, <clears throat> there are people who most of us love uh, what comes after this. And some of us are really willing to go to bat for what comes before it, uh, including songs, albums like Earthling, which don't appeal to me. Um, Everyone's a mite bit perplexed by ours, which is him suddenly going into, I don't know, sort of like very smooth and palatable adult contemporary for the most part. Um, you know, I remember when this first came out, I remember seeing the reviews and, and the early hype saying, oh, this is like Hunky Dory. It's his most melodic song about the album since Hunky Dory. This song, this album sounds nothing like Hunky Dory, for crying out loud. This album has a curiously to my mind at least aimless and and drifty tone where it i'm not sure why it exists or where it came from i think it was bowie desiring to write more melodic songs that's a great very you know laudable goal uh, but he didn't quite know what he was going to do and of course he was still working collaborating eye to eye with reeves gabrels and this is the last album that they would work together on and i think that's very telling because gabrels didn't really feel comfortable going this way i think the best song on this album is one where that conflict almost comes through sonically um uh, but so much of the rest of this album feels again except for the instrumental brilliant adventure which of course i like because i love these <laughs> instrumentals um uh, the rest of it feels so like almost bizarrely superfluous in david bowie's career it was just sort of like the accidental album in in this this late 90s early 2000s transition it also was a terrible cover by the way it might be the worst david cover. bowie holding david bowie it's not it's not it's not real good um I want to rescue this one a little bit. Uh, I think it's better than its reputation. Uh, and the second half ends up getting a little bit heavier and not as engaging, at least for me. Uh, but I, I don't think there are 
I don't think there are a ton of bad tracks here. And I think there are some, look, Seven is a damn good song. Seven is a good song. Uh, very good song. Seven, I agree. That's one. Of the, that's a very sweet, melodic pop song that yeah. works. Seven Days to Live is the is the lyrical conceit. So you have a, a kind of a throwback to, to five years as well when you think about it. I forgot what my brother said. I forgot what he said. I don't regret anything at all. I remember how we went on a bridge of violent people. I was small enough to cry. I got seven days to live my life, or seven ways to die. Hold my face before you. Still my trembling heart Seven days is to live my life Or seven ways to die That's a really good song. I think uh, I think what's really happening is That's pretty the best good, song. <laughs> right? What, what's really happening has uh, verses that sound like You Keep Me Hanging On. It's got that same beat from You Keep Me Hanging On. And I didn't know this until I read a bit the, the lyrics were written by a fan in an internet contest because David Bowie was, this is 1999 and Bowie was very big about the internet and getting involved and posting stuff and interacting with fans and answering questions. And there was a contest with hours in which you could write the lyrics to a David Bowie song and he would record them. And I think there's live or the, not live, but I think there's, you know, a video of him doing the uh, the vocals for this song that a fa- a twenty year old fan ended up, ended up writing. So this actually happened once before on a Buffalo Springfield album. Their final Buffalo Springfield album, last time around, uh, the same thing. They, they they let a fan write the lyrics to "In the Hour of Not Quite Right," and it's so <laughs> embarrassing that the that when they put out the boxed set, the complete works Buffalo Springfield box set they didn't include the song uh, and this is actually miraculously the opposite but we really you yeah. got to give him credit it wasn't his lyric but he was not going to sell that song short yeah. that has the best guitar work on the album I love the ending of that song uh, where it almost feels like it's Gabriel sort of just like you know acting out against all of the sort of otherwise very nice and quiet and mm-hmm. staid sounds on the record Here, where you actually hear Bowie's voice, you know, through the sludge and effects of the last couple of albums, a song like uh, "Survive" or "Thursday's Child," I don't love, but but again, at least 
he's there. You can hear him. Uh, Thursday's Child nearly had TLC doing backing vocals, and Reeves Grubrell had to get involved and uh, get involved and veto that idea. Uh, it still totally doesn't work. Even it, TLC would have made it worse. worse. But even yes. as on its own, it's it, it's like the worst of these singles that's always yeah. included on his compilations. I don't like it at all. It, it maybe kind of poisons my view of the entire record. And, and something in the air is a Bowie rarity in that I, I think the verses are good. But the chorus is bad. Bowie rarely writes a bad chorus, but the chorus to something in the air is so bad it sort of kills the momentum of the song. That's usually not an issue with his songwriting. So I I just think, you know, it's not the best of the era and it's not uh, a classic, but I think ours is better than its reputation, uh, better than its reputation. Yeah, it's this is a really weird one for me because knowing my kind of usual musical presuppositions and tastes you would think i would love bowie going back to the old kind of songwriter singer songwriter troubadour phase of his career and just doing like nine or ten just songs even though i could appreciate uh, you know, some of the production calls on Earthling, as I said in my description of it, it was because under it, I could hear really good songs, I think. Um, and so you would think that this would be like Mana from Heaven, like Bowie doing some songs. Awesome. Perfect. I just don't think the songs are very good here. I think there are two good songs on this album. Seven is a great song. Survive is a really good, solid song. Um, the rest just kind of meander around and go in weird melodic and harmonic directions that I just don't get. Um, and given that it's so gauzy and acoustic and strummy, um, I really don't grasp what it was he thought he was trying to do with this. Um, you, you, you make production calls like that when you're sure that you have some great songs to share. But the songs that he would be writing just a few years in the future for his next few albums are so much better than these songs that it it leaves me perplexed. So I don't hate this album, but a little bit like some of the other ones in, in the 90s, I sort of am left thinking, I don't know what you're doing here. You're sort of out of sync with yourself, out of sync with my taste. So I don't really like Bowie much anymore. You're just sort of an interesting guy who is is continuing on your way. And I'm interested in, you know, poking into what you're doing with your latest release. But I don't really like your music anymore. That's what I thought at that moment. And I still feel that way when I put this album on. Like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> and so the next David Bowie album is one that you never got to hear. Uh, in fact, <laughs> you still can't technically hear it, although if you have half a brain, you can find it. It's out there. He released it. He recorded it, rather. Um, and his record label actually said, no, you can't release this, which was stunning. How are you going to tell David Bowie he can't release an album? What was it called? It was called Toy. Why was it called Toy? Well, this is an interesting thought. He was going to go back to some of his earliest material of all time, like the stuff that he recorded. Listen, the stuff that we felt compelled to skip when we did part one of this episode, of this this series, like his early pre-Space Oddity, pre-even David Bowie 
era stuff. Um, we did cover some of them, but there's these songs on this thing called like, like "Let Me Sleep Beside You," "Can't Help Thinking About Me," uh, and all, including some other outtakes from like early in that you know era, combined with some new songs that he had written. Uh, and he put it together and he submitted it and the label said no. It has finally it came out in dribs and drabs and B-sides and this and that. Um, but it is a fairly interesting little record. And I I always regret that, that it was never given an official release because I think it's actually it's pretty good. It, 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 it really kind of it comes right up on the border of the era where everybody starts to agree about Bowie again. Uh, but I think a lot of the people who know the rest of his discography, they're never going to hear about this, this album that never existed except for like the hardcore fans who know how to use BitTorrent. anything really to say about it other than the the songs that have come up in dribs and drabs through the years i mean i i'm a huge booster of his redo of conversation piece a 1969 track that yeah. nearly nearly made space oddity um and and the original is a very nice kind of folky uh, song reminiscent of kind of uh, Simon and Garfunkel bookends era. Um, and it's nice, but I think the the version he did for Toy is just fantastic with a beautiful cello arrangement from Visconti and Bowie singing in his most compelling kind of deep bass baritone voice on much of the track. Um, it's really, really powerful. And, uh, you know, some other songs like Afraid, which I'm a big fan of on Heathen, were originally cut for Toy. Um, the version on on uh, Heathen, I think, is better. It's a little, it kind of has more elements added to the arrangement. Um, but, you know, I, I wish, I, I, I'm sort of shocked that his estate hasn't put this out by now. I mean, They've put out a ton of stuff since he died, and I'm I'm surprised they haven't just thrown Toy back together and put it out as an individual release. Hopefully, they will someday. I think that this album is just a huge ton of fun. But can the reason for that is that I've always been really into the early goofy Bowie, which of course most people aren't really going to be too terribly interested in. But like, I'm the guy who gets into like silly boy blue, right? <laughs> you know, where he's singing about yak butter statues and like, you know, child of Tibet and all that stuff. And then he does like a just a wonderful 
wonderfully lyrical version of this. And you, you realize he's looking way back. He's doing like In the Heat of the Morning, Liza Jane, his first ever single. The London Boys, I dig every. I think he does every one of his early singles on this thing. It's, you know, it feels like it feels like a latter day version of pinups, but it's vastly more successful than pinups. And it's pinups if pinups had just been him covering his old self. Um, that's actually a pretty compelling and interesting conceit. You know, he's accumulated the backstory and the discography to make that justifiable. But of course, that brings us to. Um, which is the moment I think where I'm looking forward to so much because everybody here can just start agreeing the hell out of with each other about Bowie again. This is he. Twinkle, twinkle, uncle Floyd. Watching This is 2002, and I just remember I was sitting in my college radio station. Yep, I was one of the guys who did stuff in the college radio station, and my friend Paulie, who was a DJ, you know, handed this to me because you know you get the CDs that the, the record label sends to you, and he says, "Hey, you know what? You might want to take a look at this. I know you're a big fan of Bowie. It's his new album, pre-release. It's Heathen." And I thought kind of the, probably the way Damon was thinking. I was like, well, you know, he hasn't really been up to much lately, has he? You know, I mean, like, I like his old stuff, but I really i am not, not a big fan of the new stuff. But I took it home and I put it on and my mind was blown. Uh, and my mind remains blown to this day. I think this is, you know, the beginning of his, his late career, critical revival and commercial and artistic revival. And, of course, I think maybe the big story that was usually, you know, emphasized in the press is that this is the return of Tony Visconti, who hadn't been producing him or working with him since 1980, Scary Monsters. Uh, he comes back and, uh, well, I mean, it was really always, uh, you know, a match made in heaven for these two guys. They were friends. They understood one another. They were willing to encourage each other to be weird. Uh, they were not, you know, going to step on, on, you know, like, you know, one another. If they thought they made a misstep, they had confidence in one another. And what that leads to is an album, the first of a run of albums, in fact, the last four albums of David Bowie's career that are uh, probably the most impressive terminal ending to a music career that we've ever had. And I say that because, you know, thank God, let's pray. I don't want to cross our fingers. Bob Dylan is still with us. That last album was pretty good. I don't want to say anything. You know, who knows what might be coming down the pike. But the way Bowie ended his career was stunning. And it starts 20 years ago nearly, which is a funny and strange thing to say, with Heathen. Um, Damon, what are your thoughts on this record? Well, I mean, 
you we've been sort of sort of telling the Damon Linker story along the way. At this point in my life, I'm an editor at First Things Magazine in New York City, and I take my lunch break and walk down to Tower Records at 14th Street and Union Square. And because I know Bowie has a new album coming out, and I'm still curious enough that I want to saddle up to what they used to have back then, which is a bunch of headphones that you would kind of just put on your head and you'd press a button. And I remember it well, yeah. Into the wall. And I put it on, and Sunday comes on, and that's kind of like subdued, weird little keyboard song or dirgy. I don't know what to make of that. Then the next track cactus a cover of a pixies tune and it just blows me away i'm like who the hell is this this the energy the impact of bowie's vocal and the arrangement and the ugliness but also the the kind of charismatic swagger of the song i think is fantastic but it's a cover slip away this <laughs> hits me and i'm like you know it might not be as great as that but this is reminding me of life on mars like a big dramatic theatrical ballad and they just kept coming so i bought that thing right there walked around <laughs> for the rest of my lunch hour and i listened to it straight for at least a month and just I just marvel at it to this day. Almost every song on this album is at least good and more than half of it is is great. I don't even I don't even want to hog the time anymore because I could just kind of run through the songs and just rave about them. It is such a return to form. I mean, my view of it, the last thing I'll say for now, for now is it is it is the true we talked last time about how every every critic with every album there's always a critic who would always say this is the best thing he's done since scary monsters scary monsters this is the best thing he had done since scary monsters and in two senses not just that it's the best album since then in my view but also in the sense that if we just bracket the ups and downs and misfires of the of the intervening two decades this album strikes me as a plausible continuation of the artistic direction where he he was evolving when scary monsters came out it's almost like he picked up where he left off visconti's back in the booth and they went right back to work and it was such a breath of fresh air to this day i love this album from beginning to end it's a good summation um of heathen in in 2002 Coming out like Jeff, I was also at the radio station when I probably saw this the first time come through. The I mean, my, my only little uh, not complaint even, but it, it, I, I think things actually get better from from here. This is a good first course, um, as Damon pointed out. Look, I think by far it's the best thing since Scary Monsters that that he ended up doing. Uh, you know, the time between Heathen and Scary Monsters doesn't have a ton of highlights, so. It's 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 not the biggest bar to, to cross, but it crosses it easily. 
A uh, song like Afraid that you guys had just mentioned, I believe, you know, uh, coming from so the, the toy tracks is really good. The strings on there are very tastefully done. What a great melody with an up-tempo beat. Afraid is, is a real highlight here. Uh, Pete Townsend plays uh, guitar on a song called Slow Burn, which uh, has this bass saxophone combo. Sax- the thing is that's the best guitar he's played yes. on any record, including <laughs> his solo records or the Who records since 1983. Yes. And that's really strange. To that, um, "Slip Away" is uh, another really good one from from Heathen, um, and then there are there are the three covers uh, on here, including the, the Pixie song that Damon mentioned, which is great. There's a Neil Young cover on here as well. It, it's a good selection of songs. The song writing, I think, is a step above where it had been. Certainly, the past uh, couple of albums, it's even a step up from there, and it's a great reintroduction. And I, I like the way Damon. Uh, sort of couch this and saying that you could sort of see a through line from things that were happening way before here uh, pop back up again on Heathen. It's that strong. It's an album where, and this is a tribute to David Bowie because I always talk about how dodgy his covers are, are usually on these records. There are three covers on this record. All three of them are magnificent. The version of Cactus, right? Which has actually never been my favorite Pixie song. We did a Pixies episode way back in the day with Christian Snyder. Um, Surferosa is a great album. It's, it's so good that I actually think that's one of the lesser songs on it. But boy, he just kills it here. And he, you know, he's the perfect person to bring home the deep messed up weirdness of it. You know, you know, smear your bodily fluids and you blood and your juices on this and send it to me you know if anybody can pull that off and at this point it's david boy but then the neil young thing i've been waiting for you you know who i didn't even know this and i didn't know this until i looked it up literally this week as we were preparing for the show that's dave Grohl, the foo fighters on that who knew that i did i, I should peg book taught me that like a week ago i couldn't believe it yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know. That's hilarious. And you know what? It, it works really well. But the best cover on this is, of course, the one from the legendary uh, mm-hmm. cowboy 
<laughs> Legendary Stardust Cowboy. This is a song called I Took a Trip on a Gemini Spaceship. I actually went back this was in 2005 or something like that. It was actually on YouTube. Some crazy idiot had actually uploaded this thing to YouTube back then. Um, and I heard the original. And uh, did Bowie's version is, let's put it this way, it's much more well-developed than the original version. Um, it's one of his greatest covers ever. And it's so perfect for him because, you know, he gets it all like the sort of, you know, star, Ziggy Stardust kind of, you know, themes that he had been playing with throughout his career, the futurism and all that. But it's actually just a, a beautiful song, the way that they arrange it. Took a trip on a Gemini spacecraft Shut my space gun And I thought about you And I took a, I took a walk in space Boy, I really felt blue Everything on this record, the 12 songs on this record, there's nothing on it I don't like. Not a single song. If I had to you put a gun to my head, I'd say I would be your slave. My least favorite song on the record. Mm, fine. But it ends so strongly. Everyone Says Hi is a, such a beautiful and pretty song, but it's so melancholy. It's so melancholy. That's a song about death. It's about looking upwards and backwards. It's about about basically him like you know saying hello to all the people who have left him in his life and kind of pondering well what what comes for me after death and there's this little synth echo bit at the end of each stanza that just kills me every single time I'd love to get a letter like to know what's what hope the weather's good and it's not too hot for you. Everyone says hi. Everyone says hi. Everyone says don't stay in a sad place where they don't care how you are. Everyone. Can I just throw in there that his vocals on that song are so beautiful. He sings Everyone Says Hi so well. I mean, his his voice kind of gets better as he gets older. Isn't that weird? Yeah. 
very rare for a rock guy. You know, that happens in opera and other things sometimes. <laughs> voice mellows but but bowie's voice on this album is impeccable and he sings everyone says hi especially really well but the also the versatility of this record shocks because right after that dude there's a cure song a better future <laughs> i love a better future that is a straight up ripped straight from kiss me kiss me kiss me or our uh head on the door like 85 to 87 era cure uh it's these big, big pop hooks. Um, and uh, again, the complete willingness to go with extreme melancholy, art rock, weird cover songs, and then A Better Future, which hides away on the back end of Heathen. So like, I think a lot of people probably don't pay it much attention. Man, that's a great song. I first heard it. I remember when I first heard it. I took it home, took the CD home from the, you know, from the radio station. Then I sat all the way through it. I was like writing a paper or something like that. And I got to that one. And that was where the moment I was just like, I have to go hit back, hit the back button. What the hell is that? That's in between days, isn't it? No, that that's David Bowie. And that's what I mean when I say that he had just finally found this new gear that wasn't going to end. In my opinion, at least, because the thing is, and, and this is not that sort of the critical consensus, the critical consensus tells us that, well, reality, the follow up to Heathen is a step down from Heathen. I don't know if I believe no. that at all. No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think I think it's, it's more rockist. It's more straight ahead. I, I, I consider them to be a, pr a perfect pair. They, they're absolutely, you must hear the one and then the other. They were recorded so close to one another, one on the heels of the other. But I, I think reality is every bit as good. And boy, you know, if you guys feel like making the argument that this one's better, then I'm not going to really fight you on it one bit. Well, I mean, my take, my take on it, I, I have the same kind of story that like I loved Heathen. And this came out pretty soon afterwards. I think it was less than two years later. And I was, again, it was literally a year and one month. It was that, that yeah, year. actually. Yeah. yeah so I, uh, I, I again left first things, went for a walk at my lunch hour, went to the same place, picked up a reality pot. I didn't listen to it in the store this time. I trusted it would be good enough to be worth <laughs> the buy. A busk man thing. And and again was blown. You were away. right. First track, New Killer Star. That is a great Bowie song. All the corners of the buildings. 
like four parts when you by the time you get to the chorus it has like verse second part of verse pre-chorus and then chorus it's it's angular and ugly catchy as hell nice resolutions later on great opening track um I guess I mean I could I could scan through and again say a lot of things. Days is one of my favorite tracks on this. Oh album. yeah, that, that whole that whole midsection of that album just yeah. Gets oh, it's fantastic. Out. Days is a beautiful Bowie song with one of his best bridges ever. It's it's so complex harmonically and just beautiful. And then the last song, "Bring Me the Disco King." slays me seven minutes and 45 seconds of a jazz ballad about aging death his career uh, killing time in the 70s is one of the lines um really interesting mike garson piano work all the way through it um it's just a great album capper with heathen there's really nothing on it that i don't think is solid i guess the title track track 10 i don't love but i'm fine listening to it i don't skip it really but it's probably the one i like the least but other than that it's it's just a damn solid album and i think depending on my mood i can say it's better than heathen or slightly inferior to heathen but with that over the years what that means is they're both freaking great they are. If it was me, I would say "Looking for Water" is the one that I think is probably the weakest. It's not that it's a bad oh, song. I like that one a lot. Yeah, well, it feels a little <laughs> generic to me. I don't know. Uh, you know, you know, you know, horses for courses. But the, the one that comes right after it is is I remember again when I got it back in it was two thousand and three. Right, I was just out of college. Uh, She'll drive the big car, and the, the the title itself made it sound like it was one of those dumb throwaway songs that Van Morrison wrote to get out of his bad contract with Bang Records back in 1968. Like, like, oh, this is not like a serious tune, isn't it? And then I hear those opening chords. There's, the, the, it, it's funny. The mix is so, so intelligent and so intriguing on that song. That such a great rhythm guitar uh, bed on She'll Drive the Big Car, which is a, a song apparently about like somebody who wants to go have an affair with a guy who lives in the bad part of town. Right, of all things. Uh, but God, I was just like gripped by it.
listen in headphones. God, headphone listening is just such a revelation for you know somebody like me at least, somebody who is actually hard of hearing. So perhaps one of the reasons why. Uh, but that whole sequence from that she'll drive the big car days fall dog bombs the moon which i think most people don't understand but i get it bombs the moon is is kind of like nuke the moon remember that great mr show sketch where they decide the president president uh like guy whiteyson uh decides to nuke the moon in order to sort of increase his approval ratings and it's a very patriotic thing um that's where david bowie was coming on that and then this is hilarious for me because, of course, as a Beatle maniac, a guy who had purchased all the Beatles solo albums from back in the day, boy, I didn't think there was anybody else on the planet who remembered Try Some, Buy Some by George Harrison off of living in the material world. Uh, and then Bowie just does this majestic version of it. I think he was more inspired by by Ronnie Spector, who, who's the, the original Harrison backing track was given to her. Um but the version of this is nearly as good. Actually, you know what? I'll just say I think it's superior to those original two versions. Uh, and it, it kind of really emphasizes how weird the chord changes are on that song, where they're just not what you're expecting them to be. Probably why it was never a big pop hit back in the day. But uh, his taste in cover music has just gotten so much better during this later era and it, the the effort he brings to those songs is completely equivalent to the effort that he brings to you know songs like you know never get old or new killer star his originals his own tunes and that's what i love about this era of bowie is that it it, it all feels of a piece every cover tune every original they all sound like they come from the same block of wood through my life i've seen gray sky met big fry seen them die to get high oh, oh, oh. and when it seems that i would only be lonely i opened my eyes and i saw Not a thing did I feel Not a thing did I know Till I called on your love And your love sure did go lesser effort it's not like pinups where he just felt like he was you know eh, you know let's just put some product down let's waste some time this is this stuff is all of a piece and uh reality i guess i'm i just waver so much and i uh, we're near the end of the show and i still don't know whether this one or heathen is going to make my list that just tells you what i think of it i would make the argument it's better than heathen and i would make the argument say it now that I think it's his best album of, that we're covering here today. I think it's the best album of, of this of this era. It is it is relaxed. It is comfortable. There's nothing pummeled by production on here. There's no studio tricks for the most part. It's never embarrassing. 
it's uh, it's David Bowie as an adult and not adult as an adult contemporary easy listening, your light rock station fair. It's just him being uh, confident and comfortable and really mastering his craft. Uh, not that he had mastered it previously, but certainly it had been a while since he'd written songs and produced songs quite this good. Uh, I disagree with Jeff, as I mentioned. I, I think Looking for Water is a really great song. Uh, the descending bass line, this insistent beat, almost a, a Motown motor to it. Uh, the Loneliest Guy, I don't think anyone's mentioned yet. That is a fantastic song. Uh, sparse, right? It's probably the sparsest song on the album. Uh, spare bass notes being played nearly a cappella at times. Those vocals pushed way in front. Uh, and you know, the lyric, I'm the luckiest guy, not the loneliest guy in the world, but, but, but delivered in an uncertain tone, maybe trying to convince himself that that's actually the case. All the pages that have turned All the errors left unlearned But I'm the luckiest guy Not the loneliest guy In the world Not me Uh, New Killer Star, which Damon mentioned, that bass line hook is huge, right? The first time you play New Killer Star, you feel like you've heard that song a hundred times. Not because it's derivative, but because it, it feels familiar. It feels comfortable. There are songs like this all over the record. I think the, uh, uh, the title track, actually, I think is one of my lesser favorite tracks on the album, but a, a tune like uh, Never Get Old early on in the, in the album is also very, very good. Um, I think start to finish for a number of reasons. Reality is the best record of this era. And of course, what happens after this era, he takes the album out on tour. It's a great tour. In fact, it, it led to a live album, which I think David and I are both are pretty fond of called a reality tour, which is a boring yeah. title. It is, and they did a they did a weird butcher job on the sequencing of the of the actual album that you you get when you try to listen to it. Um, but but who cares? The music is great. Right. The music is great. I just wish it actually mirrored the show. But I guess the show, it, 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 they were to the point where the band was rehearsing fifty to sixty tracks, and he would sort through the set list as he wanted to every night and just change it up. So I guess what you ended up on uh on the album is a kind of uh imagined show um and it, it is a great live album i think i mean you you really gave a, a very strong plug for stage uh last time from 1978 um i would actually vote for reality tour uh, the live album as the best of the bowie live album I mean, it, ha it has a much better version of China Girl than you'll ever hear on Let's Dance, right? Throws in some, like, really crazy, like, random tracks, like, you know, you know uh, Sister Midnight and China Girl, Be My Wife. 
uh, Under Pressure comes back with Gail Ann Dorsey singing it. I think even fantastic job. She she's great. Doesn't doesn't he sing Life on Mars? It's it's not quite as good as it would have been in back 1971 because he doesn't have the same sort of vocal, <laughs> yeah, you know, they, vocal elasticity they, that he used to have. They changed the key so he can hit the note. So, so he but can it, hit the note, right? Yeah. But, it, but it's 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 pretty solid. Um, and the Ziggy songs he does uh, five it, years. Yeah, he ends he ends with all those Ziggy songs, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and the Ziggy Stardust's uh, the title track from Ziggy Stardust is very well done. It's, it's solid. He sings it well. The guitar is awesome. Sleepy play guitar, charming girl, weird and killer. The stars were lost when we played it left hand. We waited too far. Became a special man when we were Ziggy's band. the young dudes is like the one song on david live that i sort of like the version on this is better yeah um, so it's good i mean and, and he doesn't he doesn't spare like he, he it's all the stuff on reality he's there there's a lot of stuff from heathen too which are the two ones he's promoting and then he'll throw in he throws in like the motel of all things from outside <laughs> which right. is like the randomest pick to throw in but whatever it's a really good live album and yeah i agree with you a stage i prefer but like this is the second essential david bowie live album that you should pick and then what happens he has well, essentially a heart attack i i believe it's not a heart attack he had like a angina or something like that he, he goes out on stage and he has to like leave early because he's experiencing extreme chest pains oh, this is when he's touring the album in 2003 2004 and um then it's canceled the tour the rest of the dates are canceled and then he eventually reveals like yeah i had to have emergency heart surgery and that is the end of the story of david bowie he had gone into retirement. He, uh, you know, had these heart problems, and he decided, well, you know what? I'm just going to stay at home, be a dad. I'm not going to worry about this. I'm not going to play any more dates. I'm not going to do any more music. I've I've played out my string. I don't really have anything more to say. Until, and this is not a joke. Nearly ten years later, as it turns out, he had been recording this album in secret in like what 2000 and. 
11 forward um, and he'd been taking his sweet time with it because he just didn't want to rush it wanted to make sure it was as good as it could be uh, didn't feel the need to like have to promote singles or go on do shoot music videos or any of that crap so he was just he's free to do what he was he's multi-billionaire remember this man sold stock in his own songbook so he can take as much time as he wants he has all the money in the world um, and then all of a sudden like oh like a week before it's officially released uh, it gets announced. I still remember it. Gosh, I think probably just joined Twitter at the time. Hey, there's a new David Bowie album coming out. It's called The Next Day. Oh, and here's what the, the album cover looks like. It's Heroes. The album cover <laughs> Heroes literally blotted out with a big white square that just says in simple text, The Next Day. If that isn't an artistic statement uh, that is asking you to interpret it in 17 different ways, then I don't know what it is. But the thing about it is that he has 10 years off, 9 years off, he hadn't missed the beat. This album is just as good as Heathen in reality. Yeah, I mean, I I think I will uh, tentatively agree with that, but uh, put a caveat on it. Um, the 14 songs that are the main tracks on the next day, very solid album, uh, especially if you realize that he's now in his mid 60s, he's post heart attack, he hasn't put out any music in about a decade that he puts out these 14 tracks with the vitality and power uh, of them, the compelling vocals and performances on it, many, many solid songs. It's incredibly impressive. My only caveat is that he also released, <laughs> I guess, a total EP and yeah. other songs on an EP later that year. That are just as good. That are so good. I would love if they if he. I think a lot of those songs are actually better than some of the songs in the guts of the next day. I think the next day has fourteen tracks. To me, it feels a little, a little uh, long. I think there there is a definitely a kind of angular, ugly vibe to a lot of the songs on the next day. That I think often work there are this is actually an album with a lot of very beautiful bridges so whereas a lot of pop songs will often have kind of uh somewhat ugly slightly off-putting or minor key or ugly verses and then have a big shining melodic major key chorus this album has sort of what i described sort of uglyish verses and then another kind of uglyish if catchy chorus and then a bridge that is like a ray of sunshine and just beautiful this is true a boss of me late in the album how does the grass grow is like that uh and there are a couple of others earlier too as well that have that same dynamic if i had been able to kind of dump maybe three or four of the ones in the middle there and then swap in hmm. the best tracks from the ep this for me would be as great as heathen and reality as it is i don't think it quite rises to that level now i will say of course this is complaining about an embarrassment of riches in other words he put out 20 songs 
and the mix and match that he came up with for the official release i don't think is the best combo but if you put all 20 songs together and realize we got 20 bowie songs that year and a good say two-thirds of them are fantastic we had no right at this point to expect anything like that i think the only song i would dump from this record is maybe dirty boys right has it's not bad it has a nice sullen strut in the guitars with the sax honks which i think are david playing in the background but i'd say that's one of the more boring songs on the record but everything else practically gets me i mean where are we now I know you talked about this. Uh, gosh, oh, it's been so long, Damon. We've been recording these shows for so long <laughs> that I can't remember whether you mentioned it on an episode or <clears throat> it was just something that we talked about in our show notes. But that line about how how'd you get the train from Potsdam or Plots, you know, he's talking to his old self. He's what he's doing. And that's why the heroes album cover blanked out is so appropriate for the thing you know he's talking about like did you ever think that what you were living back then uh you know you know was going to come to what we live now where i can actually go travel from what was once east berlin to west berlin it's no problem uh and that then that guitar solo at the end of the song is one of the most beautiful moments in again in his entire career and it's, it has those great subtle bass harmonies it, like you usually don't hear bass harmonics but underneath uh, playing out on the end of where are we now that's one of those it, it, again it actually is very different from almost all the rest of the music on this album it's a torch ballad uh but it is such a beautiful song as long as there's rain as long as there's rain as long as there's they released uh as yeah. the initial single like mm -hmm. when they as you were describing how they like announced there's a new bowie album which nobody expected they dropped the this very weird video for that song to go with it where his face mm -hmm. is projected on a little like muppet thing mm -hmm. and, and yeah. with all these murky home movies of berlin streets and so forth very compelling and it totally right. misled you as to the nature of what the rest of the album was going to oh, sound yeah. like yeah, exactly exactly totally not at all there's all, there's all these little like like funny callbacks you know it is a very sort of self-referential album from the cover on down like uh, not one of my favorite songs probably another one that i might have been able to drop is uh you feel so lonely you could die but every time I hear the ending of that song, I just laugh out loud at the inclusion of the five years drum beat. <laughs> it, it, it literally, uh, out of nowhere, it just goes, and then it just fades away for no reason. It's just like clearly, like, you know, Bowie told the drummer to be like, all right, yeah, do the five years opening. All right. Why is it there? To what end? I know not. 
but I laugh every time. To say that that's one of my favorite tracks on the album so, yeah, so there you uh, go i i like it a lot i think it's uh it's definitely one of the more melodic straightforwardly major key melodic a nice six eight you know it, this has been an, I, i've never thought of this before but from driving saturday to this with you know absolute beginners in the middle like there's definitely a theme in bowie of like doo-wop like he definitely every every decade he drops a really good kind of pastiche doo-wop music and this is the one from the end of his life and i think it's a really good one scott let me let me make one point before i talk a bit about the next day which is as we sort of enter the the home stretch of the Bowie career, just pointing out, look, this is an artist that never became a greatest hits factory, right? There were no nostalgia tours. There were no, let's play. There was one nostalgia tour, <laughs> the Sound and Vision tour, which True. we didn't discuss. <laughs> I just have to, have to be the, you know, the stickler here. Well, I mean, he wasn't doing Let's Dance from start to finish and come on out and yeah, pay, uh, right. you know, 120 bucks to go fill a, a stadium necessarily, right? So he wasn't playing his albums back to back. He did it, I think, once. I think he played low front to back just for the hell of it. Right. And so you know, th- that's something to keep in mind. And as we get here to uh, the next day, uh, I-, I think there's a strong continuation here from those past two albums, from from Heathen and uh, and Reality. Um, uh, they're not completely crafted out of, out of the same block of granite, so to speak, but it's close. And the next day is very similar quality-wise. And if I'm going to have to rank the three, I already told you reality is my favorite. Um, I might put Heathen just a step above the next day, but they're awfully close. There's a lot of good stuff here. I I do think there's a couple of minor missteps. Uh, One is if you can see me. Uh, Two is how does your grass grow? How does the grass grow? I'm not, uh, I don't love either of those. Oh, that's a stupid song, but I enjoy it. So. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't think anyone's mentioned Valentine's Day yet. And man, that's a fun song. And I think that's... I, it's even guitar. Guitar. It's, guitar. it's yeah. a great song. I love that song. That might make my list at the end. So. Yeah. And it, it, it's like mid-tempo guitar heroics. And then you listen to the lyric of that song. And that's, I think, about like school shootings. It or is. Something like. yes. It is. And, and, and yeah, again, it's it kind of goes back to... You know, some of his other little misdirections on other earlier songs where you really need to just listen deep to the lyric because if you just listen to the music, you'd be like, yeah. oh, yeah, oh, that's how inspiring. And then, oh, wait, no, I've made a terrible mistake. Valentine told me how he feels If all the world were under his heels 
There's a couple like that just on this album. Love is Lost is another one with a, uh, a troubled uh, narrator uh, in the lyrics. But I, I like that track as well. I agree with Damon. I think You Feel So Lonely You Could Die is one of the better songs here too. Uh, with the strings, a very emotive vocal performance uh, from Bowie. I, I did. I was not able to give some of the uh, the bonus tracks the uh, the attention they uh, apparently deserve based on both of she your glowing so, recommendations. I will on the truck. She so is a great, great, great random ass like thrown away B side that should. So she. I, I always miss. I always get reversed. <laughs> so so she is a like it's almost like again a goofy pop song along the lines of you know a, a better future uh but i don't understand why it was left off except for the reason that maybe he thought it was too lightweight um but go listen to that man it's just such a great tune Priceless man who suffers gloom so slow Eyes were stolen for her The sleeping sky takes the moon so slow I would slide away Further out to sea Further out to sea So she Yeah, I mean, I would I would put in plugs for God Bless the Girl, which I think would have added a, a really nice uh, kind of change of pace if it had been put on the album. The Informer, Like a Rocket Man, Atomica, all of these are really strong songs. Um, so I recommend listeners, you know, uh, seek them out. They're easy to find. You can find them on Apple Music or on uh, YouTube. Yeah, you don't just need the next day. You need the next day extra. That is the <laughs> formal title of this thing. Check it out. It really will not disappoint you. Although, listen, both of us have now just jumped in on Scott, as we all, all too often do. We're good. We're good. Well, I mean, here, again, so 10 years off, nine years off, suddenly comes out with a new album. And, it's, you know, the joke goes, like, I, I've read that, like, you know, you know, some of the, the people who are playing – Bowie made the, the artists that were playing with him sign NDAs, yeah, right. like Trump, right? like non-disclosure agreements, because <clears throat> he wanted it to be a complete secret and a complete surprise. And they would be just talking to him and joking around with each other as they were doing these arrangements. And they would ask, well, how the hell are we going to play this live? And Bowie would always say, like, we're not. I'm not, because I'm never going to play live again, which he never did. Um 2013 happens next day comes out greeted to universally praiseworthy reviews justifiably so it it, it does hold up so well uh and then people thought well okay well it, that's it Bowie has put the kind of coda onto his career he's done uh thank you for leaving us with this great great album um but i assume that that's it and you're just gonna go retire 
what we didn't know at the time, and actually in 2013, what he didn't know at the time, is that he had liver cancer. And this is not something that most people survive through. I mean, it's probably not as bad as having pancreatic cancer, which is the real sort of death sentence in terms of cancer diagnoses. But it was bad. Uh, he got his diagnoses, and then he immediately set into the studio. And what did he do? He did, uh, there were a couple of songs he had already hanging around because he had done a, um, a Greatest Hits album that he put out, like, you know, two extra tracks for. And I think one of those extra tracks is absolutely worth mentioning. Um, the track I'm thinking of in particular is called Sue, or In a Season of Crime. Uh, this is from the Nothing Has Changed Greatest Hits set. And that is better than the version that ends up on his final album, Black Star. It's, uh, I don't know how to quite describe it. It's James Bond plus Miles Davis and Gil Evans smashed into a bus full of Scott Walker aficionados. It's a beautiful song that is reliant upon like bold and brilliant trump, trumpet and saxophone takes but also like a strong bass line and you know avant-garde guitar in the background it's jazz he's going at the end and where he's going is uh, I think in a kind of a more Scott Walker-esque direction but never naked imitation uh, this is his own unique farewell and what must most be emphasized about Black Star, the final David Bowie album is that he recorded it knowing he was likely at least he couldn't know for sure he was likely dying uh, and he wanted to get it out. So what did he do? He got Tony Visconti, uh, and he got a, a, a small kind of a jazz ensemble that could also play, you know, rock or at least avant-garde rock. And he put together this album under ultimate secrecy and released it. Um, I remember. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember it as well as I do, but I remember being so excited when I was like, oh, there's a new Bowie album. Oh, <clears throat> here's these these great new videos. He promoted it with the music videos to Lazarus and Blackstar, which were super compelling visually. I remember the Lazarus one where you know he's got these bandages wrapped around his eyes and he's, he's on Mars or something like that. I thought, wow, this is very deep and dark and doomy music he's clearly dealing with mortality 
then the album comes out and then a day later he's dead he died of liver cancer two days after the album this is the album's release and i've always just sort of been shocked and stunned by that um my respect for the way he handled this has only grown over time it would have been so easy for him to sort of announce like oh, i am facing a terminal illness and just rake in the accolades because they would have been so forthcoming uh instead he just lived his artistic truth he put out this album as his final testament um I know that this is not the most accessible David Bowie album. It is his only, ironically enough, only number one album in the United States, which is the strangest thing. Yeah. Ziggy Stardust, Young Americans, Station to Station, Let's Dance. None of them went to number one. Black Star went to number one. Which tells you about how the music industry has changed. Um, but I love this record. I I will always find this to be one of his most profoundly moving records. This this record reminds me in a lot of ways of the later years of Talk Talk, Laughing Stock, and uh, the Mark Hollis solo album. Uh, that's a comparison that's going to only make sense to a very select part of our audience. Uh, but I like it, and I understand why you guys might not like it as much as I do. I don't hear the difficulties on it than you do. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I I wouldn't put it in the same category as some of those 90s records that I re just really didn't like at all. Um, it's just, I mean, let, well, let me start on the positive side. Obviously, the fact that he died right after it came out colors the way I will listen to it for the rest of my life, as for I'm sure all of us. Um, Lazarus, the song, which obviously is an image of rising from the dead, the video for it is brilliant and haunting and frankly horrible to watch after knowing that he was so close to death when he filmed it um if you listen to that song with the video it is incredibly uh, an incredibly powerful and moving piece of art days is a good solid song i can my ear can can make sense of that uh as a kind of 
mid-tempo jazzy ballad. Um, I love the lyrics of I Can't Give Everything Away and the fact that the last song on the last album he would ever do has that title is very uh, effective and moving to me, again, as a gesture, an artistic gesture. But I will say that I respect this record more than I genuinely enjoy listening to it. It's just too far out harmonically for me. Um, I can't quite wrap my ear around it. Um, lyrically, it's powerful and often moving, uh, especially with its many uh, references to death, again, because of what happened afterwards. Um, but I, the honest truth is I don't often feel the desire to put it on. And when I do, it's usually because I'm feeling a little melancholy about his death and want to sort of... Uh, marinade in that sadness a little bit and appreciate what he was doing toward the end but a kind of for its own sake as a, as a piece of music it is not really uh for me that's my my take on it i guess i'm generally with damon on this i uh, for the glowing reviews it got upon release and certainly some of those may have been depending on publishing dates um, sort of ha- had the thought of his death also in mind. You think they were being kind because yeah, you know, I, how can you blaspheme the dead? I think there's certainly uh, that's certainly a possibility. Not that they were praising something that was terrible as being great, but perhaps adding a few extra bonus points given the situation. And, and so I was just, just expecting something that 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 grabbed me a little harder. And that's not to say there's not good stuff here. And I do wonder if many repeated listens might bring a little more out for me. It's it's certainly a stylistic change, I think, from those last couple of records uh, and, mm-hmm. and even the last record, right? So that you have that 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 jump here. It it is more jazzy. There's there's there probably is what saxophone on every track on on this record, uh, probably. Uh, Lazarus is a very good song. It's slow burn, build, and the last 90 seconds really cooks. That's a great band playing great music those last 90 seconds. Those echoing guitar chords, that pulsating bass and, and steady drum beat. That last bit of Lazarus really sells me. And I think the last two songs um, really tie things up well. Dollar Days and I Can't Give Everything Away. Dollar Days has that lyric, it's like, uh, what, uh, I'm dying to push their backs against the grain and fool them all again and again, uh, which sounds very Bowie-esque. And, and then I can't give everything away. Jeff, do you hear that? Do you hear not at uh, a new career in a new town there, that that, that longing harmonica? In, yeah, uh, not, in... not only that, but, the, but then the idea that, like, you know, Say, seeing more and feeling less, saying no but meaning yes, that's all I ever meant. That's the message that I sent, which is not necessarily true. It's like kind of almost a deception in a lyric because I don't think you can ever accuse Bowie of feeling less in his songs. This is kind of, by the way, one again, if there's a theme over these three episodes that I've always been intent on emphasizing is that you know, to think him as the chameleon, the changer, you know, the faker, uh, the person who just, you know, puts on pretenses to misunderstand who David Bowie was fundamentally. He told people, he was happy to tell them at any time they would ask. He was always writing about what was in his life at the time he wrote. But as his life changed, so did the things that he wrote about. And that is 
where Black Star obviously comes from as a song. I hear I hear that same yearning as you mentioned, you know, from a new career in a new town, and that and and uh, I can't get everything away. It kind of it will choke you up because it just makes me feel that like it's, it's him saying it's like, you know, you people thought I never gave anything away, but I did. I did. I did way more than you seem to realize. But I can't give it all away. I have to remain, you know, I have to remain autonomous. I have to keep some secrets for myself, Um, especially at this time, at this extremity of my life. Um, So, yes, uh, uh, as I said on our last episode. So, I like that song. Title track is reminiscent in placement and length alone, at least alone, of uh, of station to station. You've got this this massive track that sets the tone for an album. It takes a long time to unfold, just just like station to station. It's almost it's not quite ten minutes, but almost ten minutes long. And it starts off Black Star, and it and it is, it is truly a two part song, just right. like station to station. Correct. You have to get past the thing is you know the upfront jazz skitter of part one, right? You know, it's going to throw you off the game. You'll be like, what is this? What is this? And then, then all of a sudden part two is simply beautiful. The moment he starts singing, something happened on the day he died, which again, unavoidable. I mean, who, who, who was he writing about when he wrote this song? Was he writing about himself? I can't know. Hey, we can't ask him anymore, but it's so easy to identify it with that. And then all of a sudden it's a beautiful song. It's a very pretty song with very conventionally pretty chord changes and a chorus. And uh, then eventually it goes back into a recreation of that first part, but with less uh, less of the sort of, you know, atonality. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I understand. I understand why the both of you don't love this album the way I do. Um because I'm a weird dude, as everyone who's listened to all like what 91 now episodes of this show should understand. Uh, but this reminds me of late period Scott Walker, where he went off of you know even the stuff on like Night Flights. Um, uh, he got weird and weirder and weirder from Climate of Hunter to like you know, you know Tilt uh, and, and his last stuff. Um, he was fearless. This is as fearless as Bowie has ever been, too, uh, precisely because he's faced with he's faced up mortality and he's come to terms with it. And he knows that, yeah, well, here's the end. 
this is the end and I am I am confident that I can meet my end with pride and I can do something that will stand for all time and will not embarrass me but will in fact honor my legacy so yeah I, I do get emotional about this perhaps in a way that you guys don't something happened on the day he died spirit rose and meet up and stepped aside somebody else took his place and bravely cried I'm a black star I'm a black star Does an angel fall? How many people lie instead of talking tall? He trod the sacred ground, he cried loud into the crowd. I do, uh, but it doesn't uh, doesn't change my. I mean, for me, music is kind of it. It's it is what it is, and um, if I love something, I can attach emotions to it. But I can't gin up uh, love of the music because of the emotions surrounding it. Um, so that's I think probably explains it i mean it's just um yeah it's a pity it's a pity damon you were a whore (laughs) (laughs) that's an interesting track you know uh so that the people uh, listening know that uh you did not in fact actually say that to me that is the name of track two on (laughs) track two on black (laughs) i am not i am not for the record calling damon linker a whore (laughs) thank goodness yeah, uh, there are also some other tracks that are not bad at all. Uh, there was another kind of like the extra EP that was released a little bit after uh, the next day. There's one uh, from this because he also, uh, in the final months of his life, was putting together this bizarre musical uh, called Lazarus uh, that included a couple of tracks uh, that were recorded at the same sessions for this album that were not put on the album but were used in that show and and if if you appreciate and like the music on this you'll certainly appreciate and like those as well they very much are of a piece and they're solid songs but again just not necessarily uh, for me all right well I believe I mean, unless there is, you know, unless he is truly Lazarus, uh, (laughs) this marks the end of our three-part retrospective on David Bowie. Scott, do you want to take it? We have come to the part of the episode in which your three hosts give you the two albums and the five songs from this lengthy David Bowie era, which you should hear. Damon Linker, our guest, senior correspondent at The Week. Find him on Twitter at Damon Linker. Floor is yours for your two albums and five songs. Okay, well, unlike with the first two episodes, this time uh, it's a very easy call. Uh, I think Heathen and Reality are clearly the two strongest albums of this era. Although I will say that 
The next day with its EP is a very close third. So, uh, but other than those three, um, nothing comes close for me. Uh, as for the songs, uh, I will choose, and again, this might be a little different on another day, but for today, I will choose Absolute Beginners, then uh, much to Scott's chagrin, uh, Battle for Britain, The Letter, which is from Earthling, then Afraid, from uh, Heathen, Days from Reality, and Valentine's Day from the next day. Oh, and let me, since since uh, Jeff slightly cheated uh, and added a sixth, <laughs> I will at least plug once again the redo of Conversation piece that was done for the toy album that ended up as a B-side or extra track on Heathen. I really urge people to seek that out and uh, enjoy it. It's a great song. You've been here for three episodes with us, so I think that's fair enough. And, and now we're going to drop that clip. One, the light that shines above the grocer's store Investigates my face so rudely And my essays lying scattered on the floor Fulfill their needs just by being there And my hands shake my head my voice sticks inside my throat I'm invisible and dumb And no one will recall me And I can see the water Through the tears in my So for my two albums, I would choose uh, Outside and Reality. And I talked both those up earlier in the, in the show, so you can leave it there. Uh, the five songs going way back to the very first record that we covered, Let's Dance, Modern Love. Uh, it's just, it, it's a killer pop song. And as I mentioned, one of the songs I really have changed my mind about uh, from Bowie from, from some years ago. Um Miracle Goodnight, I think, is one that deserves discovery off one of the uh, lesser-known albums from this era. Uh, I Have Not Been to Oxford Town. Very, very good track. Talked about it earlier. Uh, I think The Loneliest Guy is on the list. And um, I was thinking about throwing Valentine's Day on there because it's really great. We didn't spend a ton of time talking about it, but since Damon's got it on his, I'll, I'll bump up uh, seven which again is from another album that is uh, perhaps not as well-known or well-liked, but I think a song that it, it's a, just a damn good song on that record. So Seven will be my fifth song on my list. Jeff? Well, I had a four-way shootout between The Buddha of Suburbia, Heathen, Reality, and The Next Day for my picks. Uh, what I ended up going with were, of course, my uh, you know jerky, you know underrated picks. Suburbia. It's the most underrated David Bowie album of all time. It's the one that you mostly didn't even realize existed. It's the one that had the horrible original cover art that made it look like it was some cheesy TV soundtrack. Check it out. It is just sort of a small, quiet Berlin-era take on Bowie. Um, Heathen and reality, the, 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 the tragedy of the fact is that I love both of these albums so much that I can't pick between them, so they both lose. Sorry. And that means that my second pick for the best of this year will be the next day. 
which I think, you know, as Damien pointed out, is like when you combine the album itself and the extra EP, there's just so much good music on this, which I guess is what happens when you sit on your haunches for a solid nine years and you just gather your resources and, you know, charge up all of your power. Um, my five songs, uh, I will start with uh, Cat People, Putting Out Fire. Not the terrible one on the Let's Dance album, but that original Giorgio Moroder single. Oh, God, that is so good. Um, I'm going to skip way ahead to Tin Machine, and I'll say I Can't Read mm-hmm. is actually probably one of my other favorites. I just It kind of really exemplifies everything that Reeves Cabral's brought David Bowie as a collaborator in terms of the way his guitar sort of seemed to revive Bowie's creative instincts. Uh, the third one I'll say is Dead Against It from Black Tie, or rather from Boot of Suburbia. Uh, this is one of those songs that, remember, nobody knows this album exists. Well, if you didn't know the album exists, I'm damn sure you didn't know this song exists. Check it out. Now I'm going to zoom all the way over to Heathen, and I'll say of all the songs on Heathen, my favorite is A Better Future which is uh, just one of those really, 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 really great uh, Cure-like poppy songs uh, that, that for whatever reason doesn't seem to be remembered too much. And uh, the fifth song I'll pick is from Reality. It's Days, which uh, was already mentioned, I believe, by Damon. That's a great song. It's one of those songs that almost slides by because it's so assured. And hey, if he was allowed to pick a sixth song, ha, 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 I already planned this. I have a sixth song as well. And that song is actually going to be The Stars Are Out Tonight from the next day. Uh, Because the first time I heard this from 2013, I thought to myself, man, where did this kind of energy come from? It reminded me of a much more version of Blackout, which is course one of my favorite songs from heroes which of course made the cover of next day seem so appropriate and it had that kind of epic energy and freneticism and it it, it was the proof positive that you know david bowie up until the day he died i wish he could have lived another 40 years although it would have been very strange to see a 120 year old david bowie on stage he he still had his artistic integrity up until the moment, and uh, he never lost it. Even though he lost his way somewhere in the middle of that that 1980s period, uh, he was always one of the great creators, one of the great artists, one of the one of the ones is that I said right at the beginning of our first episode that we are never going to look upon his like again. We will never be rid of these stars, but I
that'll wrap up our multi-part look at the life and career of David Bowie. Our thanks to Damon Linker for sitting with us for all this time, senior correspondent at The Week, where he writes three columns each week about politics and culture. Find him on Twitter, at Damon Linker. Damon, thank you so much for doing all three of these David Bowie episodes with us. No, really. Thanks to both of you guys. This has been fantastic. I mean, basically, everyone listening to this, you realize what this has meant is that for about the last month of my life and of these guys' lives, I'm sure, I've just been immersed in David Bowie, just listening to Bowie, reading about Bowie, thinking about him, weighing songs and albums. What? Uh, David, David, what, what are you talking about? I've been listening to Sonny and Cher. Uh, well, I, I know how much you love them. Um, but it, it has just been a fabulous experience, as you can tell from my autobiographical stuff. Uh, this, the, this material has been a big part of my life for a very long time, and it, it's been a lot of fun. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Thank Damon. You. Yep. Uh, we can't do this without our fantastic guests. And uh, Damon is right. I was going to say Damon's one of them, but that's not like damning with faint praise. I meant... <laughs> He's one of the good ones. Uh, and, and, and anyone who's willing to join us for like seven and a half hours. Yes. Please, <laughs> right up there. Uh, Jeff Blair at Esoteric CD on Twitter. We've got a uh, exclusive content episode to bash out here soon, and then we get to plan. You know, doing a thing like Bo, you've got like almost six to eight weeks of time planned out. We know what we're doing now. Uh, some uncertainty, but I know we have some options. Well, the nice thing about this is that since we had such a quick turnaround time here, maybe we can take a week off or something. I don't know. Right, Why should we can't? We're going to be recording our Patreon episode. Yeah, that's week. just the two of us. It's shorter. I think we take at yeah. least another week off after that and then uh, yeah. see where we're at. All right. Well, for all the fans, we'll be back. Uh, I'm Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Remember, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash political beats. Help the show stay ad free. Support our efforts entry level for supporting and voting on some questions like perhaps very soon what should be our next big episode uh, mid-level for early access to new shows and higher audio quality and upper level with exclusive content once a month remastered episodes spotify playlists and more patreon.com slash political beats and here's where we say thank you to some of our current supporters via the patreon for being a part of all of our efforts thank you dale stratton john j hickox Kenton Hoover, Ken Kester, Alex Hines, Judy Kane, Brian Zeno, Sam Braff, Michael Maharis, Jay Muchafori, and Becca Etienne. Thank you all for supporting us via the Patreon at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Subscribe to the feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, NationalReview.com. Find them there too. Listen, enjoy, and share, and leave reviews and tell friends about us too. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at political underscore beats on Twitter. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.